This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hello, hello! You arrived just in time, as I knew you would. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with you, my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. Ex really excited to talk about this season. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good one. So yeah, we are still uh, going through the rapidly expanding Star Wars saga, and this week we are talking about Rebel uh, Star Wars Rebels Season 2. Uh, before we begin our discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and to like us on Facebook. And I want to thank uh, Tonyism for his five-star review for us on iTunes. Uh, we really appreciate that. So thank you. There is not a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, info for this season. Uh, just that Greg Wiseman left the show after the first season and was replaced as executive producer by, this, uh, by the supervising writer, Henry Gilroy, who's been around this team for a long time. So the two-part premiere, The Siege of Lothal, premiered on Disney XD June 20th, 2015, but the show itself didn't start airing weekly until October 14th, which uh, just seems weird. And then the season continued from then until March 30th, 2016. Uh, we're going to do a slight change in our format uh, from the way we did like the Clone Wars. Instead of uh, just going through the plot as we talk about the episode, we will be uh, reading off a brief synopsis of kind of the big events that happen in each episode, then just going into our overall thoughts. And so we have 22 episodes, and let's just dive right into it. The first episode is Siege of Lothal. Uh, this is the two-part premiere. It is directed by Bosco NG, Brad Rao, and Dave Filoni, and was written by Henry Gilroy. As, as the season opens, the, uh, the Rebels have now joined a much larger rebellion, and the first season was pretty much them as a cell, even though they didn't know they were part of a cell. And so they're carrying out raids on just harrying the Imperial shipments with the help of Ahsoka, who is Fulcrum. And they are contacted by Minister Tua, who was kind of a minor antagonist in the first season, and she, want, she wants to defect to the Rebellion because the Inquisitor is really getting on, or not the Inquisitor, um, Callus is really, and Tarkus are really getting on her for, <laughs> for having failed so badly to capture them. Uh, so they go to rescue her, but it's a trap, and she is killed, and the crew is grounded and hunted through the streets of the capital, and eventually they are cornered and attacked by Vader uh, and completely outmatched, but then they barely escape. And then Vader follows them in his tie and takes out basically the entire Phoenix Squadron and uh, Saito's flagship, um, ending the, ending this, this premiere in a very dark place compared to how uh, chipper the first season was, season one generally was. Yeah, and it... If I remember correctly, there wasn't even like a, well, you know, we'll, we'll be able to move on from this. It was like... Oh dang! This is this is how it's gonna be, because it seemed like even whenever season one got dark, relatively dark, I guess for for the series at that time, it always, I think you pointed out, it always kind of ended with, well, we'll get back on our feet, but uh, but this one is, this is very much well, we're on the run and this sucks. Yeah, it's like we don't know what that was and we are totally unprepared to face it, and we're kind of screwed. We just we just gotta run. Just right off the bat, it was really awesome to see our A wings. Uh, I don't remember if we saw them in the season finale last week, but just they play a big part in this season, and they're just a cool little design. Yeah, a lot of the ship stuff is is really cool, uh, especially in this season more so than the first one. I guess that's you know just because we've we've got bigger fleets and there's there's a lot more space combat here, but uh, all the different designs they have, and I think this season even introduces the the hammerhead sh uh, ships. Oh uh, yeah. But, uh, 
but yeah, the A wings are super cool. Yeah, another thing I know, I, I, they probably did this in season one, but I don't remember noticing it was how the ties they blow up in pure white, just like they did in A New Hope. Yeah, they send all those like white little sparks around. Exact super same cool. uh, explosion. <laughs> so just, to, just as we said right off the bat, this episode, this uh, well, this season, but this episode in particular is so much more oppressive and dark and. We, I, I complained a lot. You, you were a bit more cool with me. <laughs> I complained a lot last week that the Empire just did not feel like much of a threat in season one. And season two comes in and just like, all right, we get you. You're, sa- you're, you're fine now. We got this. And it's just one devastating loss for the, uh, for the Rebels after another. And even more than just like the big story points, when we go back to Lothal, it feels so much darker and more oppressive and just scary. You're not sneaking around the streets, knocking stormtroopers' heads together, and you're know, picking fights. You are, you know, hunkering down. And if you're seen, you're probably dead. And I really, really appreciate that. It felt as they were sneaking the streets. It felt like I was watching kind of a World War II movie with the resistance, like you know, going through the streets of France with the Nazis. It really. It fit, you felt that darkness. Yeah, it seems like it just right out the gate. It was making good on the promise of of the ending of season one with with Vader here. You know, like the promise that things are going to change on Lothal, and and I think it definitely did that. And like you said, every every scene in this episode just feels like the uh, the Empire is is lingering over everything. And even even in scenes, yeah, I almost felt sorry for Administrator Tua here because um. There, you just have the sense of, of paranoia beforehand, you know, before Tarkin showed up and especially before Vader showed up, you didn't have too much to worry about. If the rebels got away, oh, well, you're still running the city successfully. But now that they're here, you just feel that she she's feeling the weight of the Empire on her more than beforehand. Yeah, all of all of that ended with Abbott and Costello. Yeah. yeah. Gone too soon. Or not soon enough. <laughs> yeah, here it's just right out the gate you know she she's ready to leave and i i think i audibly gasped whenever she ran into this the the ship whenever the rebels were there to to help her escape and as soon as she was in it just blows up and like wow they're they're just killing people like this is Mm. this is rough and like this season is not kidding yeah Uh, but going back to the beginning i I like just seeing kind of where these characters are i'm guessing it doesn't seem like too long has passed. Everyone looked pretty much looks the same. So I'm guessing it was only about a few, maybe a few months in between the, uh, the uh, season one and two. But I like how Ezra has completely integrated himself. He's a part of this crew. He's even occasionally stepping up and taking like little little bits of leadership. I like how Hera has really integrated herself into the larger rebellion. And what's interesting is how Kanan seemed to take her uh, taking on this extra responsibility as an excuse to kind of step back and just try and be the lovable rogue again. It was kind of funny, just where he's just like, yeah, just kicking back while she's you know, she's the one flying the ship, and he's like, I'm just gonna, I'm just here to shoot tie fighters. I, you can, you can deal with all that other stuff. Yeah, and at first I was like really annoyed with him, you know, just how displeased he was with their position with the rebellion and everything. And then I was like, I, I think I'm supposed to be. And when you, what I was just realizing is, you know, in his mind, he was already like pushing the limits of the responsibility he was willing to take on just with season one, you know, it taking on a new apprentice felt overwhelming. And now that he's finally settled into that role, he's being asked to step in as like maybe not genuine leadership, but just some sort of like role uh, with responsibility here in the rebellion as it forms. And, you know, as, as soon as he's comfortable with one thing, a whole new thing is being asked of him. So 
to me, it felt in line with where his character was at. The, a guy who's already struggling to uh, to accept the responsibilities being thrown on him. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was he was a part of the Clone Wars as a child, and you saw how that went for him and you know his people, the Jedi. They were completely destroyed, and and you know for a while he completely just ran away from everything. And eventually, Hera convinced him to come back and try and to start do some good for the galaxy. And he did, you know, he was doing that. He was he was part of the the uh, the ghost crew. You know, they were helping people, you know, giving people food, you know, helping those who are oppressed. And now they're moving into something that is so much bigger than that. They're turning into almost an active military. And that's not exactly what Kanan signed up for. I mean, you know, he's still against the Empire. He still wants to help people, but he still he, he wants to try and maintain a, uh, some kind of independence, probably just because he. D- He's just afraid of the prospect of just wading into another long war. Yeah, and one of the things that I liked is during his conversation with Hera when he brought up being in the Clone Wars, I love that this show allows you to kind of like feel the ramifications of that war. You know, despite the fact that sometimes the the, the original trilogy makes it seem like, oh, that was an ancient war. Like, still, it, it's it's, you know, not out of everybody's minds. It's still, you know, in the memory of a, of a lot of people, and and he even mentions the fact that it it hurt more than just the Jedi, and you know that's that's just something he's not ready to to be a part of again. Mm, and you know, with a war like this, there's not not only is there no guarantee of winning, there's a ninety five percent chance of losing and everything you love and care about being completely destroyed. Yeah. So back to uh back to when they go back when they go to the fall, uh, to rescue Minister Tui. It, it is crazy how as soon as they meet her. You know, she runs into the ship and it explodes and Callus comes out and you're just like, yeah, th- nothing is going well. And, and, you know, in episode one, I felt like every everything just kind of went the, the way for the, uh, the rebels way. And they could all even if they got tight, they could always squeeze their way out. Here's just one thing after another. And they you know, keep being knocked back and then they, they escape from Callus. And then I love how even before Vader shows up, you have both Ezra and Caden kind of feeling at the same time. It's just the cold. It is just this so much foreboding surrounding him, even before we even know he's there. I mean, we, we know it's Vader because we know Vader's in the show, but just before they even know what's going on, it's just there's, there's something so skin crawling about his presence. Yeah, and what's so I watched this right after watching the season one finale, and what made this so effective for me um, was just because of how how they were able to take on the Inquisitor by the end of season one. You know. Ezra and Kanan together were taking him on and he, you know after Ezra fell Kanan took him on one-on-one and ended up winning and he was like the big bad guy for that entire season who was constantly besting them and and now once we think like wow they're really making it they're ready to take on anyone Vader just shows up and completely like destroys yeah. them and not and not just destroys them just has fun doing it and is just torturing them while he's doing it. Like when he had Ezra against it's the wall nonchalant. and he's like pushing his hand with his saber like back toward his throat. And I, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this probably a lot more in, in this season's finale, but uh, I love the way they visualize Vader fighting where he's awesome. He's using the force. He's fighting with a lightsaber, but they never, they never go too far with him. He's never jumping. He's still kind of like this slow lumbering hulk of a, of a suit yeah. just swinging with one arm around it it's the same praise i had for um for rogue one's ending with him where it's like he they managed to make him look 
awesome without ever really betraying the way we saw him fight in A New Hope. And that, like, that's just super cool to me. Yeah, they're able to you know speed up his choreography to make him fit into a Clone Wars and Rebels uh, style of lightsaber fighting. But the style and the way he moves and you know his fighting stances are all exactly the same as they were in uh, the the original trilogy. It's, it's, it's you know it's uh, it's kind of a hyper version of that, but it, it's it never as you said never contradicts that. And I love how huge he is. Just the way he kind of towers and bends over Kanan while fighting. It's just everything they do about him makes him so intimidating and terrifying. Like I would say this scene is probably top five vader scenes from the entire saga for me just i mean first after you know he comes in and just takes them both out and it's just the the, the cold and james Earl jones is absolutely uh, absolutely wonderful um but then once they pull the walker onto him and i think okay we got him and then you turn around and the, he just lifts the walker up the, the stance he's in as he's holding the the walker in the air is just so epic yeah there's definitely some like poster worthy shots in the episode um, and then, you know, we, we leave from that and go into, um, into him chasing them out into space. Yeah. And, and that scene itself is super cool. Um, just the way, he, and I feel like again, there you think, you know, one TIE fighter against all of them, it's a bit ridiculous, but you know, the way they had him flying and he was spinning, which is a good <laughs> trick. And he, he pulled that, he pulled that trick that, uh, Poe used where he kind of spins around in mid flight to shoot at the people coming behind him. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, but then, you know, as if this whole episode wasn't just, you know, epic enough, you've got Ahsoka's involvement and the, like the line that just had the hairs stand on the back of my neck was just when Vader, Vader senses it and he just says, so the apprentice lives like, oh man. There's a lot of history there. Yeah. So man, this was just a, a fantastic way to start a series off and i i do like that it still felt you know it wasn't like they completely abandoned the tone of the the season before they still they still found moments for for banter between the crew there was a a line that i i thought was really funny where uh ezra's trying to to use the force to persuade a, a clone trooper i think or a stormtrooper to let him pass and it doesn't work and kanan kanan uses it and it does work and ezra's just like i wish that worked for me and kanan just says i wish that worked on you and continues walking so there's still you know like it's still the same characters and they still have the same dynamics this time they're able to maintain that with a a more serious tone yeah this episode like the finale of season one was good but this episode just comes in it feels like it was tailor-made to comfort me and you know put to to put me at ease after all the the complaints and worries i had about season one about the tone the, the filler episodes and just no no kind of threat like this comes in and just every one of those worries is like completely answered. Yeah, you know, there's this it's not a perfect season, but there's still some stuff I have issues with. But as a whole, I think this episode is really um it's 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 a good sample of what this season is gonna be leading uh going into this. The first, I guess, official episode after uh the season debut is called the The Lost Commanders. Um it was directed by Dave Filoni and Sergio Pe- uh Pais, uh and it was written by Matt Mishnovitz. Um, so just a brief rundown here. Uh, needing to find a new base of operations, Ahsoka ends up sending the crew of the Ghost to seek out an old friend of hers from the Clone Wars who might be able to help. Uh, with the Ghost damaged upon re-entry from hyperspace, Hera and Chopper have to stay behind to make repairs, while the rest of the crew goes to the planet's surface aboard the Phantom. Uh, they eventually land and come upon an old ATTE walker from the Clone War era. 
that's inhabited by three clones we're all familiar with. Wolf, Gregor, and most importantly, Rex. Yay! Uh, which just, man, makes me so gleeful. Um, Kanan is distrustful, uh, distrustful for pretty much the entirety of these episodes due to, you know, Order 66 still being on his mind. However, Rex explains, and this is just such a cool, you know, answer to everyone's questions about Re- uh, Rex's fate in the Clone Wars when Rex explains that uh, he, Wolf, and Gregor all had their chips removed, um, but he denies Ezra's pleas for him to, jo- uh, to join the rebellion. Um, but they're still there primarily for intelligence. So Gregor offers the intelligence if they help them hunt Jupas, <laughs> uh, large desert worms. Um, so after the worm is hunted and killed, the information is exchanged as was agreed. However, it is discovered that Wolf contacted the Empire uh, due to try to keep the three clones safe um, and not have it look like they're assisting the rebellion. Um, a probe droid is discovered by Sabine, uh, and it's seen damaging the engines to the Phantom, but is quickly destroyed, and the crew ends up awaiting the arrival of the Empire. Yeah, so right off the top, we get uh, three of the best clones come back. Uh, unfortunately, no Cody. We know that he did not uh, survive Order 66 with his mind intact. But uh, the the, uh, the thing about how how Rex survived and uh, Gregor and Wolf by removing the chips like uh, Fives and uh, Tup did is uh, briefly uh, covered in, um, or at least uh, referenced in the Ahsoka book. So that was pretty cool. It kind of went a little bit into that, how uh, both of them kind of survived together. And also, I really love how they're playing, they play on the distrust between the Jedi and clones, you know. I mean, coming in after seeing five seasons of or six seasons of clone wars you just you just kind of expect the jedi the jedi and clones they belong together they're a team they but obviously there's a lot of hard feelings between the two over the last 15 years so you have kanan is obviously fearful and distrustful of them because last he saw of clones was them killing his master and all and you know all the other jedi and the uh the clones are terrified because Oh look, a Jedi came, and all our friends killed all his friends, and he's probably here to kill us. Um, so we just throughout the whole episode, you kind of they're slowly having to learn to work together and trust each other, despite a lot of you know very old and deep animosity. Yeah, I never really thought about you know what the relationship between a clone and a Jedi would look like post Revenge of the Sith. I, I guess primarily just because we we never see clones after that era, but. Um, but I do like the way they handled it, where it's not just, you know, all buddy-buddy. Because, you know, the entire dynamic completely shifted. And, and I like that, you know, Gregor, who just kind of speaks his mind the second he sees it. He's like, oh, it's a Jedi off of revenge. Mm-hmm. You know, that's... You almost think that maybe they're hiding, you know, from either, you know, the Jedi. It's it's not stated exactly, you know, what they're out there for. I guess, you know, that planet is just kind of like Florida for for elderly uh, clones. It looks but, a lot uh, like Crait. It does. I thought the or same. Or the uh, the planet the that um, uh, D Squad was trapped on. <laughs> Maybe Gregor feels more at home there. And I love how Gregor is just kind of nuts. <laughs> it's a big bongo. <laughs> He's just constantly cackling, and you know it's kind of ridiculous the whole fishing thing and the physics of that do not work. Like Zeb would have been you know ripped in half or crushed, or he would have been very 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 dead after what happened to them. But 
I love how they, they kind of just go through the whole Jaws fishing sequence where you have the crazy <laughs> old captain and the, the landsman who's like, what are you doing? And it's just, you know, they, they go through the whole thing. A lot of very similar shots to Jaws, but it, it's really fun. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I kind of love that they don't try to hide what it's an homage to because the music that they play as they're hunting it is almost yeah. identical to the upbeat, cheery music of Jaws. It's Spielberg music, which is crazy because, you know, John Williams did Star Wars and and uh, Jaws, but it's very it's very distinctly Spielberg music, not Star Wars music. I guess just because, you know, the history between Star Wars and Spielberg and just the friendship between Lucas and Spielberg, it's like anytime there's stuff like this, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. You know, they've done it already with, you know, Indiana Jones and stuff and vice versa, so... And just briefly, you know, talking about the the introduction of the clones in in this you know new series, I really love the designs. Like, I love how just kind of buff they make them look <laughs> now. Especially Rex is just this huge old grizzled man with this big white beard. It's it looks cool. Like, you know, it's it's not a disappointing look at at where Rex is right now and. And just the idea that it's these three old guys out on this old busted up ATT that they've retrofit, uh, retrofitted a live in. It's- Which is one of the coolest sights I've ever seen. Just walk, watching that, you know, rickety old thing kind of uh, creaking its way across the desert. The, the smoke, very steampunk looking thing is so cool. Very, very satisfying way to reintroduce a, a fan favorite. Yeah, and, and I love how Rex is not, you know, immediately gung-ho about coming into another war. I mean, we, we saw how, especially looking back to the Umbara arc, where, you know, he, he starts that arc, you know, fully believing and gung-ho about this war. And, you know, we have to obey the Jedi. This is our orders. You know, this is what we are. And then going through all of that. And until by the end, he is very cynical and just kind of lost a lot of his faith in the entire war and then obviously learning that the whole war was a ruse and they put in and the war essentially put into power the very people they're fighting against. So, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't rush back into another co- a conflict larger than yourself if you had been through all that. And it makes so much sense. They're like, yeah, this we were we creative. We were created for a war. We were there. We did our duty and everything went wrong because of it. So yeah, we're not going to jump back into another war. Even though you know we're the good guys, we're going to help you. We'll help you again. But this is this is not this is not our fight. We've had our war. We're done with this. And I love how you know they're so opposed, and you know mainly for for Gregor and Wolf, so frightened of the prospect itself that that Wolf is okay with you know contacting the Empire, um, you know just to to avoid even the appearance of of helping them out. Um, and I also thought that was kind of a bold choice, you know, because Wolf, he kind of was mainly known for like having just about the coolest armor of of all the clones. But, you know, fans kind of latched on to him as well. And so to reintroduce him as this this guy willing to turn him in, you know, it's a bolder choice. But I think it works yeah. out in the end um, just because it makes him more of a, a dynamic character, I guess. All right. So our next episode is Relics of the Old Republic. This was directed by Bosco NG and written by Stephen Melching. Uh, so we have, it starts out with Callus and Admiral Constantine uh, showing up with the fleet and then they land a uh, ground invasion with uh, AT-ATs. The clones decide, you know, th- through their uh, the camaraderie built uh, chasing the big bongo, they decided not to uh, turn the Jedi and uh, the rest of the ghost crew in. 
and they decide to flee into a sandstorm and there's this you know really cool chase and you know through clever tactics and using the force they're able to defeat the uh, the three walkers that uh Callus is in and as they escape vader calls constantine away to meet the fifth brother allowing them to uh, get out of the system and in the end, we have rex and the other clones they decide to join the rebellion after all and I think this is one of the most visually beautiful episodes in the entire show. Just the image of the you know, the old crawler going towards the sandstorm with the other walkers in the distance and the the way it's visualized in the sandstorm, the explosions kind of obscured by all the all the particles and oh the shot of the, the um the walker kind of climbing up the legs of the uh the ATAT. It's just so many really iconic looking shots. Yeah, it really is cool. <laughs> Maybe it's just any sort of sandstorm is always going to remind me of Mad Max. But, you know, just that, that imagery of, of all of these machinery moving into this uh, this huge oncoming storm just always looks super cool. Uh, one of the things that I liked about this episode was just like the way it kind of started to establish the dynamics and the relationships between, uh, you know, the three clones and uh, and the crew of the ghost that was down there. Uh, like I, there's just a really cool friendship that ends up blossoming between Zeb and Gregor where <laughs> yeah. Gregor's just crazy enough to come up with all these, you know, nonsensical, I, you know, ideas and Zeb's like, Oh, that sounds good. And it's, you know, they get real chummy real quick and they're a lot of fun. And, and I like how, you know, Ezra ends up quickly taking two Rex and, and looking up to him, but it doesn't come at the cost of his relationship with Kanan and, well, it does, but that's kind of somewhat. So it's kind of the drama. Well, that's that's. I feel like that kind of comes on later. Where here, you know, he's not he he's not feeling as if he's having to pick a side, and he's trying to unite the two because you know, as he as he talks to Rex, he spends a lot of that conversation bragging about Kanan, just kind of you know talking like I I have a great master and and all of this, and just to to try to see if he can't maybe be the the person who ends up bringing Rex and, and Kanan into some sort of friendly agreement. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the, throughout the show, we've just been seeing, you know, scoundrels and rascals fighting the Empire. It's cool just to see real soldiers at work again. You know, they're old and rickety, but they, they got fight in them. Um, and there's a great line. You know, it's a, if it's a fight you want, I hope you brought a better class of soldiers than those stormtroopers. And Cal's like, yeah, I have a great deal of them. You're going to need all of them epic things like that and we move into this really amazing kind of submarine warfare where they're hiding they 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 ran they, they fled into the sandstorm and the uh AT-ATs pursue them in there and so there's no visibility they turn off all the power and they're trying to they have to use the force uh Kanan's using the force to kind of guide their guns to shoot at that one weak spot in the necks of the AT-ATs and it's just the way it's it's. I mean, it could it could have been very easy to get lost in there, but I think they did a really good job just showing us where each and every person, every player is as they're kind of closing in and they're shooting and then moving out of the way. It's just really, really well done uh, battle sequence. And, you know, and the way they win could be completely unbelievable, but I think because of how good of a job they did, they just walk you through the tactics. It makes a lot of sense, and I love you know every time they kind of call out the directions, the camera always ends up pulling back out to kind of show physically where the ATTE is is moving in relation to the the ATATs and so you always feel like you have some sort of, like some sort of idea of where they're trying to get to and and you know the positions they're trying to get all the three others into 
Uh, it's a super cool sequence. So I did have a question about this episode. It seems like the three clones join, but we only ever see Rex after this, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Maybe, I forget if he shows up in any of them show up in season three or four, but yeah, pretty much it's just Rex after this. I like to think they, they probably went to train uh, people in other cells. That'd be cool. Really, I mean, I love seeing them, but Rex is who we're here for, though, so I was happy. Mm-hmm. And I like how they don't make Callus stupid. Like, Callus is actually incredibly smart, the way he leads his uh, guys in and is trying to f- discover the uh, the rebels. Like, they don't make him st- – he doesn't make stupid mistakes. It's just kind of luck is against him. But I like how he is actually an intimidating presence. Yeah, and I don't even know how much I talked about – you know, I, I liked him in the, in the last episode, but um, – I actually always really liked him as a character, but here even more so. He really grows on me in this mm-hmm. season. And, and yeah, I like that they're, he's never really the joke of a scene. He, he's always portrayed as being you know, quite competent in, in everything he does. I really wish Callus could, could come to live action, but <laughs> considering the, act, the actor they chose to play him in his skin color in real life, I don't know if it would actually work because so much of Callus is that voice. It's so dignified and proper and... And authoritative, yeah. you know, you it feels like a voice that should be giving out orders and all. Yeah, Oyelowo just, he's got such, yeah, and he brings a lot of depth to the character. He makes, just the way his cadence, he makes every line, no matter how just kind of normal and uh, mundane, sounds so authoritative, as he said. So yeah, and then just at the end, we get a really sweet reunion between Rex and Ahsoka. Those, those two obviously have a lot of history. Yeah. And I think this this season does a lot of you know, there's a, a lot of effort put into, you know, tugging at our heartstrings, us fans of the Clone Wars. Uh. So the next episode is Always Two There Are. And it's directed by Brad Rao uh, and written by Kevin Hobbs. Uh, so in this, Ezra sneaks aboard the Phantom with Sabine, uh, Chopper, and Zeb, who are on a supply mission as a way to escape from Kanan and Rex, who are consistently arguing over him and his training. Uh, using codes given by Rex, the crew board an old medical station abandoned after the Clone Wars in search of medical supplies. The memory files and locations of the supplies are damaged, so the group looks for them on foot while Chopper tries to uh, repair the files. Chopper is attacked by a secret droid and is used to lure the group back to him. Ezra and Sabine are captured by two newly revealed Inquisitors, leaving it up to Zev and Chopper to rescue them. Uh, after being questioned about the Rebellion, and specifically Ahsoka, Ezra ends up telling the Inquisitors nothing, and Zeb is able to use the Phantom to take on the Inquisitors long enough for Ezra and Sabine to escape and, and board the Phantom. Uh, and when back with the rest of the Rebellion, Ezra informs Kanan of the two new Inquisitors and their knowledge of the Rebellion and of Ahsoka. Yeah, so this one, uh, well, actually, we were introduced very briefly to the fifth brother, but here we get the fifth brother and the seventh sister. Um, seventh sister is uh, voiced by Sarah Michelle Geller, who is actually... Uh, married to Freddie Prince Jr., which is cool. And she's obviously, uh, you know, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um. And she does a great job with this character. I feel like by the end of this season, she's she's quite a memorable addition, in my opinion. Just the way she talks and interacts. Where Yeah, kind of crazy, gleeful, evil. <laughs> yeah, in, in a weird way, you know, she has not, not the exact same kind of relationship that someone like Ventress and Obi-Wan had, who is much more, you know, playful in it. But... You know, she almost tries to like be seductive and and just the way she moves around and and, and speaks in the like the soft voice especially initially with Ezra but she just ends up like being very unique I feel like um, she, she she's like a bit more 
civil and dignified than Ventress was. Yeah. And I like how, like, the uh, the fifth brother is just kind of this hulking beast. and Not too bright. Like, how she, she's kind of constantly playing him. And, and I love that there's, it's never, like, explicitly stated, but there's this kind of implicit rivalry between the different Inquisitors. How each one just trying to trying to win favor with I'm assuming Vader or Palpatine, and even though they're working together, they're trying to they try each one's trying to get ahead. Yeah, you feel like that would just be natural based on the the way they be trained. If there's any sort of like Sith remnant in the way they're trained, then you know it's always about about power and rank and things like that. One of the things that I really liked about this episode was just the atmosphere, and maybe it's just because of like how big of a fan I am of like sci-fi horror. Uh, like yeah. specifically like alien but just you know the way the corridors are lit and everything and uh you know whenever the the secret droid is first revealed and stuff it, it feels like they're really trying to play up on some of the tropes of of just you know being lost in space and hunted by these things um so i thought they did a cool job it, in a little you know in a way it kind of reminded me of maybe a little bit like brain invaders only in that you know you're just kind of isolated with you know a few other people and and trying to survive but that was really cool in addition to the inquisitors they make really great use of the uh the seven sisters uh, probe droids which are also very creepy yeah that's and that the way they reveal her with that where it's just you know it's a secret droid and it kind of it flies off into the shadows and reveals her was to me it felt very cinematic what what they have noticed is that she uh, force interrogates ezra is this the first time we've seen that on film because we, we see it, obviously, in, in The Force Awakens. but that I think we talked about it a bit. I think um, The Inquisitor of Season 1 did that with oh, Kanan. Oh, yeah, yeah, Okay, so... But before that, is, is this a Rebels thing? Yeah, I think so. It, it felt specific to... Uh, they do a good job of just in one episode. You know, having, you know, just previously seen The Last Inquisitor, who's, who's referred to as the Grand Inquisitor die... You know, they do a good job of making these new ones feel feel menacing right off the bat. Uh, and one of the one of the things that this episode did for me was just kind of make me like Zeb even more. Where like, you know, as soon as he he's just by himself with he and Chopper, like he, despite you know maybe being willing to to leave Ezra in season <laughs> one initially, he just seems like such a good hearted guy. He's like, oh, dang, fine, I'll do this. And I hate those probe droids. Yeah, and I, I love his, you know, when he's he's using the comm link to talk to the inquisitors <laughs> and he calls himself like commander Melu run or something yeah. like that. And that's fun callback to the, the fruit of season one, not a whole lot going on in the episode other than you know, like the, the introduction of, of these two new characters. But, but I, I do like that. It kind of continues, you know, a bit more of the, the serious tone that this season has. One with him is kind of on the, on the bookend of this episode is the, uh, the rivalry between Caden and Rex, how each one is trying to teach uh, Ezra what they know and like their ex- different training exercises are kind of overlapping and forcing uh, Ezra kind of to be in two places at once. And <laughs> there's a scene where I think, I think it's they're playing hollow chess and Caden wins and, and then uh, Rex is like, well, yeah, you learned a great lesson on strategy, didn't you? As if he, he let him win. <laughs> and I love that this episode, like, you know, like the first one, it ends with, a sense of foreboding like there's a there is a new threat and this is this is serious it's not like oh yeah we fought darth vader but we're cool you know there is it ends with oh great there's more inquisitors and we are still you know not a match for them yeah that, that's something i liked a lot as well you know especially you know coming after the the victory of 
of getting wrecks and everything. And it's not that I don't think that we should ever not end on high notes and stuff like that. But but it is cool that for every victory we get, there's the introduction of a new thread or a new problem. And and that the where like I feel like you know season one was never really just able to let itself end on that note. You know, here's the second time where like yeah, we got two new inquisitors. The end. I, I like the fact that the stakes kind of permeate throughout the, all these different episodes. Yeah. And so the next episode is Brothers of the Broken Horn. This one is directed by Saul, uh, Sam Ruiz. This one is directed by Sam Ruiz and written by Bill Wolkoff. And so here we have Ezra is left behind while everyone goes on a mission and hears a distress call from Visago and goes to his aid. But it turns out Visago's ship is actually now the property of one Hondo Inaka. And so he joins... Hondo on a job to steal some shield generators the rebellion is in desperate need of. Uh, but the job goes wrong and they are double-crossed by uh, Asmorgon. Uh, but they manage to uh, complete it. But then it turns out Visago is actually a prisoner in the uh, the brig. And Hondo didn't actually win it gambling as he claimed, but he actually stole it. And this leads to a, a lot of you know, fighting and each side's like double-crossing and triple-crossing each other until finally, uh, you know, Hondo escapes with the with the, um, with the shield generators and Ez- and Visago throws Ezra out. Uh, but, of course, Chopper programmed the, uh, the autopilot, so it just takes uh, Hondo <laughs> uh, right to the, back to the ghost. And I love how when, when Ezra finally gets back, Hondo's there just talking like, oh, yeah, this is my plan all along. Oh, hey, look, Ezra. Yeah, so it, was, it was all his plan. You know, he masterminded it. It was just really fun. Obviously, the big thing about this episode is we are uh, reintroduced to Hondo, um, who is you know one of the best characters in all of Star Wars and p- pretty much our favorite character in every episode he, he appeared in in the, uh, in the Clone Wars. And here he's a lot older, a bit more broken down he doesn't have his pirate crew anymore he's pretty much solo and he's a lot nicer like i loved how in the clone wars he had a really dark edge that he kind of hid behind his joviality uh but here he's just he's just jovial but he'll he'll betray you but he's always happy and nice about it yeah well i mean i feel like to me it still felt like the the same hondo yeah just a little more broken and old yeah yeah you definitely feel like he's you know, he's out of his A game, but he doesn't want to have to admit it. Uh, but just in terms of like what he's willing to do, I, I feel like, you know, as, as he's called out, you know, he's pretty much trying to leave Ezra with someone who was, who was supposedly in league with him, with the guy that they just, you know, double crossed and everything. And so he still feels like, you know, maybe, maybe a little, uh, a bit less, you know, willing to, uh, to not to double cross, but to allow some bad things to happen as he was before. But even, even so, it seems like at the end of the day, he's going to do what works out for him. Yeah, he'll betray you. He'll betray you, but he probably won't actually hurt you himself like he would have in the past. At least not Ezra. I got. I like. I like that it almost feels like in his mind he's kind of like molding Ezra into like a future pirate. Yeah. I love his introduction in this episode too, where he's he's working on the ship, and we hear the same music that he listens to, or that he would listen to, you know, back in his pirate cro- uh, cove in um, in the Clone Wars. I was like, oh, yep, I know who this is just because of that. Oh, the stories I could tell you, some of them true. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. Most of my notes for this episode are just quotes from him. That some of the best are from this episode to me. Like, I as as um. Ezra introduces himself as Lando Calrissian. He's like, at last I meet the semi-famous Lando Calrissian. <laughs> yeah, and then of course the the ones that are the, the one that you just said. And then, 
Man, they're, they're throughout. Almost every single line of dialogue from him is pretty golden. I don't deal with washed-up old relics. Come now, leave your wife out of this. There's no need for such impropriety among thieves. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, the one of, one of the last ones is as he's, you know, as he finds out that Ezra lied to him, he just says, you lied to me. I knew I liked you. <laughs> what, one of my best friends was a Jedi. At least I think we were friends. <laughs> so perfectly describes his, his relationship with Obi-Wan in uh, the Clone Wars. Um, so yeah, this is just a, a lot of double crossing. It's very, you know, it's very much a, a crime centered episode. They go and try to deal with Asmorgon. He betrays them and tries to kill them. It's a crazy battle. And Ezra saves uh, Hondo with the Force, which which is what reveals to him he's a Jedi. But then obviously they find out that Visago is a prisoner. So Ezra frees him. And then Ezra tries is trying to make a deal for everyone. And no one likes it. Then it just everything just keeps going wrong. And everyone's shooting at each other. Uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. One of the things that I did like about this episode, you know, as a, as I said before, you know, I don't need every single episode to be dark and, and ominous and stuff. And, you know, after after a few episodes of Taking Losses, it's kind of fun. And in a lot of ways, this reminded me of the Clone Wars whenever, especially like the first three seasons where it was willing to just kind of have this quick standalone story that's kind of completely self-contained. And yeah, and obviously it's always just fun to be back with Hondo and, and I think Chopper has cool moments too as someone who who likes I, I love it whenever he comes in to the rescue and he's holding the two guns and he's just rolling around on a single wheel and they, they play the, the the music from A New Hope that plays as a I think it's whenever Luke swings across with with Leia and they play a bit of it whenever they start shooting out all the cameras and stuff and very much that kind of like escaping from a bad situation music i guess is is what they deem it at, at the end when I, you know after hondo escapes and ezra flies back to the ghost and then we find out hondo they're talking for a half second i thought that hondo was the one who was going to sell the uh the shield generators to the rebellion all along which i think would have been kind of hilarious but it would have really ended kind of you know with uh, ezra in a bad spot I like how it ended the way he you know, he's able to just immediately instantly talk his way out of the, uh, out of trying to steal them, and I, we do get a cool moment where Ezra realizes that you know with the because the, the whole episode as you mentioned, Hondo is kind of like trying to groom him to become part of his crew so they can become partners and uh, you know, split the profit down fifty forty. We see that's actually tempting Ezra because that, this is what Ezra was you know he was a street rat and a con man trying to you know stealing what he could. And now we see we see that he's he's got he's moved beyond that he's he come to believe in something and it was cool to see him you know recognize th this is what he could have become if if uh, he hadn't found the ghost. Yeah, you kind of especially just you know with the way the uh, the previous episode opened with him kind of being pretty much trying to be groomed by two other people for very specific like oh no he needs to do this he needs to do this and. And then that continues at the beginning of this episode. You kind of see why why it would be a bit tempting for a guy who's who's pretty much just trying to groom you up to be someone who does what you want. Yeah. Um, so long as you fall in line with with Hondo. And despite despite betraying him multiple times, Hondo appreciates him more than Rex or Kanan. Yeah. And then, you know, I guess one of the last things I want to say about this, I I love, you know, you mentioned how he's just kind of instantly able to talk himself out of the situation and get away scot-free with no one even really being too upset about it all. How could you be upset at Hondo? Exactly. Just the way the uh, 
the way the, the dialogue plays out at the very end where Ezra, you know, just comes back aboard and he's like, you stole the generators and my ship. And Hondo, like, feigns. He's like, what an accusation! You wound me! And he's like, Chopper had the, uh, the Phantom on autopilot. Well, that's another version of the story, I suppose. And he just leaves. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's so perfect. Yeah. So the next episode is Wings of the Master. It was directed by Dave Filoni and Sergio Paez. Uh, and it was written by Stephen Melching. So, uh, Phoenix Squadron travels to Ibar to help with the people suffering under Imperial occupation. Uh, upon arrival, however, it is discovered that there is an Imperial blockade led by Agent Callus. Uh, the Rebels attempt to break through the blockade, but they fail, losing a transport ship and Phoenix leader. Rex informs the rebellion of a friend in possession of a prototype ship that he refers to as a blockade buster but says he's only willing to discuss the ship on the planet Shantipole, known to be a ship death trap. Uh, Kanan insists on Hera making the trip, and she reluctantly agrees, taking Sabine and Zeb with her. Hera takes, this, takes the Phantom and crash lands on the planet next to where Rex's friend Quarry lives. Hera convinces Quarry she's worthy of the new ship and gives it a test drive, discovering its speed and firepower. Uh, and using the Phantom to transport the new ship, Hera arrives as the second attempt at the blockade is being made, and she contributes to its success. Uh, and it ends with Query accepting a position over the manufacturing of additional B-Wings, and Hera is made Phoenix Leader. Which is weird, because I, I thought she was Phoenix Leader. I'm not sure if the titles were ever given beforehand, but I, I think, you know, at, at the beginning it's shown that that there was a different Phoenix Leader leading that first, uh, that first blockade run. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I liked about this episode a lot was, was again, it's just this continuing theme of stakes. You know, they talk about the people uh, of Ibar, I believe it's called, uh, like they're they're losing their food rations from the uh, the Empire, um, and instead of breaking through on the first try, you know, they they lose their leader, an entire transport ship blows up, and they ha- they have to retreat. Um, and we don't even, you know, move into that dun, 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 as the title card opens up, you know, just cause it's, it's a bit, you know, it, it's not this, this happy opening that transitions into, into, um, you know, just this upbeat scene. And so, you know, right, right at the get go, there's, there's a sense of importance to the mission. And I like that even though they failed, they, ha- they have to keep trying and, you know, after Ezra, uh, uh camera leaves, Kanan has to take command of that mission and it's, you know, try again to get some food to these starving people, despite the fact that they're probably going to die. And it's just, it's, it's what they do. And, uh, another thing that I like a lot, um, uh, partly, you know, just because Hera has kind of grown to be one of my favorite, if not, maybe even my favorite character of the series. Um, I love how Kanan just has this completely unshakable faith in Hera's competence, you know, like him volunteering her, does it feels like it was the rational decision made? You know, it doesn't feel like like uh, I volunteer Hera and like I don't want to do it. It feels like you know he's he's completely aware of her skills as a pilot, and you know the entire where it's revealed. You know, he knew nothing of Fulcrum and and of the the other Rebel cells. So it's completely in line with the fact that this is just a guy who trusts her so much that he's he's kind of willing to put all of his all of his faith in her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was cool. Even, you know, when she's reluctant, you know, and, and trying to talk herself out of it, he's like, no, you know, you're the only person who can do this and we need this. Yeah. I like the scene where they're flying into the planet and go- going through the lightning storm. <laughs> she's like, was that a ship? Oh, it was just your imagination. Uh, there's, there's, you know, a good bit of like, 
of humor that I, th I thought kind of uh, worked throughout here. Um, this is a, a bit of a, a lighter episode, that one being part of it. I love how Zeb is just kind of always along for the ride and constantly having to be like talked out of worrying about things. And well, he should very much worry. Yeah. And then Ezra and Chopper just bickering about who's co-pilot and can't just, you know, you're co-irritating me. And pretty much just two little boys arguing in the front seat. Yeah. Obviously, they come here to you know, test a ship and we meet uh, Corey, who's a Mon Calamari engineer. And he's kind of a crotchety old man. It, it takes a lot of convincing to even let uh, Hera pilot it. And there's a really cool, just a cool sequence where she's kind of piloting through the uh, the rock pillars and really fun Spielbergian music. Um, and the, the ship itself is just really cool. Where you have the the wings that kind of just like rotating, and the the both the pilot and the guns on each end just kind of can like rotate as you spin around. It's very interesting design. And the can the cannon is like it looks almost like Death Star technology or something. Yeah, that the flying scene is that was my favorite scene of this whole episode. It, I love the way they just they portrayed speed, just you know, as as she's quickly whizzing by all the, the the cameras, and it feels like you know we're moving super fast just to keep up with her, and the way she dips in and out of the mountains, it it almost reminded me of like the first flight scene in, in Man of Steel, where it's just we're curving in and out, and it's just like the sense of gleeful joy, you know, as as we're testing it all out. I was thinking um, first flight from uh, How to Train Your Dragon. And one of the, uh, one of the last cool things that I, I noticed about this episode, it, it's revealed that that she was there during the Ryloth arc in the Clone Wars. Oh yeah, you know she was there during the attack, and it was her mother who uh, who hid her, and you know she just kind of looked up and and saw the battle in the skies, and that's that's what inspired her. But it would have been cool if she if she was that uh, the little girl from um, Innocence of Ryloth. Yeah. Though that wouldn't have worked out, you know, because she has to be the daughter of Champs and Dula. Yeah. But, uh... It would have been very cute. It would have. And what, one final note is uh, uh, Corey Burton voices Quarry. He's, he's the voice of, uh, obviously, uh, Count Dooku from the Clone Wars and many other characters. Next episode is Blood Sisters. This one is directed by Bosco NG and written by Kevin Hopps. Um, so while on a mission to uh, meet with an Imperial, uh, an Imperial droid with information on Garel, Sabine and Ezra run into an old colleague of Sabine's, uh, Ketsu Anyo, who has since become a bounty hunter for the Black Sun Crime Syndicate and is also after the droid. Uh, but they are attacked by stormtroopers, uh, forcing Sabine to flee with the droid, but she is pursued by Ketsu. And right as uh, she's attacking them, the Imperials show up and they're forced to uh, work together to escape. And in the end, uh, Ketsu allows Sabine to keep the droid. <laughs> uh, and here we get a bit more of uh, Ezra's general dorkiness around girls. We see he still has something of a crush on... Uh, Sabine, <laughs> this is the kind of thing where she was just keeps going out about how how lonely she is. You you're, you're painting alone, then you're going doing this alone, then you're off doing blaster pack tracks alone. <laughs> it's just kind of and she stops. She just kind of keeps walking. She's just going on and on about how lonely she is. And so I actually like pause that and rewound it and put the <laughs> subtitles on just to just to look at the dialogue because it was cracking me. At, um, where where he begins by saying, you know, I guess sometimes I'll find you alone after I followed you and, and you're angry and I've heard you just say more than once, I want to be alone. <laughs> Actually, I've heard you say quite often, just straight leave me alone. And that's all just kind of happening off in the background after she's already stopped, but it, it definitely made me laugh. Yeah, so we meet uh, Ketsu Anyo, who's a, a female bounty hunter, an old uh, Mandalorian friend of Sabine's. And she's working for the Black uh, Black Sun Crime Syndicate, which is you know we saw those in a, they were part of uh, Darth Maul's 
uh, short-lived empire. And she's voiced by Gina Torres, who's best known as the voice of Zoe in uh, in Firefly. She also is a uh, major character in the first season of Alias. Uh, as a character, she's okay. She's just a bounty hunter. Um, I do wish they... This is you know another attempt to get more into Sabine's character, but the, the, I think the problem is, th- is this episode is just so short, and, and since we're not doing arcs, everything has to happen in one episode. Instead of information about Sabine's past coming out naturally, it's just scenes with uh, Sabine and Ketsu facing each other, just basically detailing all their life stories to each other at gunpoint. There's a lot of exposition dumps in this episode. Yeah, and... And at the end, when Ketsu agrees to allow the uh, rebellion to keep the droid, even though she doesn't want to join them, it doesn't feel earned. Like she, she seems like for the entire episode, she's been portrayed as a very a true bounty hunter. You know, she's attacking Sabine. I mean, almost you know, blowing her out into space. Like she's she's out to get this job done. And then at the end, just after you know, work, they have to work together to to to, to escape the Empire. And then she's all just like, yeah, go keep the droid. Yeah, sure, I. Got to probably get a death sentence on my head from the Black Sun Crimes Syndicate, but hey, I'm nice now. And it just didn't really feel earned. Yeah, this was the first episode that I wasn't a big fan of in this season. Um, and mainly it's it's for those reasons where it's like, you know, on first meeting, it's like, oh, it's you. And they're very much at each other's throats. And then they just have like five conversations detailing everything that the other already knows. And, and then by the end, like she's just completely welcomed by the rebels and just this quick turnaround it's like, I think we'll be seeing more of her soon. And just like how willing they were to, to welcome this member of the Black Sun and stuff. And, you know, I, I guess in its defense, you know, Lando was kind of was made a general like a year after completely betraying him. But <laughs> oh, he could talk his way into any, any, any uh, position. But exactly. One thing that really ticked me off was that Sabine left Ezra behind <laughs> after being discovered by the Imperials. What the heck? That's one. That's what I had. Like, that was one of the things that really did bother me where she just says, like Chopper is talking to her and she's like, I'm sure Ezra's fine. It just felt so cold. Yes, especially after they, they were running, they were being like, last she saw them, he was surrounded and being shot at. It, it just did like the, the ghost crew has always been about, you know, their family. They, they stick, stick around, they, you know, they stick up for each other. They fight together. They don't, they don't leave each other behind. And she does. I just, I feel so wrong. Yeah. You know, it was, this episode wasn't a good episode to try to, to endear me to like the, the one character of the ghost crew that I'm, I'm still not fully on board. Cause at this point I, I really am a big fan of all the other characters, but Sabine, it's still with the others. It feels like, you know, character development stuff it, in a way it comes naturally or I just naturally end up liking them through dynamics and stuff. But with her, it, it feels like the show almost knows that she's the weak link and it, it's trying to be like, this is why I should care about her. But to a certain point, it's like, okay, so she was, so she's a Mandalorian. She was a bounty hunter with her sister for a while. She was a member of the like, she was an Imperial ca- like cadet for a while. It's just, you can't just keep giving me details on her backstory and expect me to care if I don't like her as a character. Yeah, the the issue with Sabine in these first two seasons is that all character development for her is in the past. Like she uh, she's obviously had a really fascinating history, but everything they give us is just telling us what she had been, what she had done. Nothing is happening with her in the present. She's completely static as who she is in the present. So always we get bits of backstory and it's like, okay, cool, but none of that really affects who you are. Now you already you already are you have already arrived at who you are before we ever met you. Yeah, I guess for me one of the one of the redeeming things for me for this episode is just, 
thought there was some funny stuff with Chopper where he's he's pushing the gaunt droid into the ship. He's like coming back and ramming him, trying to get him up there and helping him up. And there was a brief moment of joy for me when he got sucked out of the uh, the airlock, but then it turns out he survived. Oh man, ah, I don't know how you're not on board with Chopper. I love I love when she looks out the window and he just kind of flies aboard. Tetsuo's ship, and he, he sits there and he pulls his arm out and just kind of waves at her, and then he falls back into the ship. It's he does get a good moment when he when he sabotages her guns, but yeah, still don't like Chopper. <laughs> mm. So the next episode is Stealth Tri- uh, Stealth Strike, directed by Brad Rowell and written by Matt Mishnovets. Uh, so traveling through hyperspace to investigate the disappearance of Rebel patrols, Ezra and Commander Sato are pulled from hyperspace by a ship discovered to have its own gravity well. Reluctantly and at the behest of Hera, Kanan and Rex, along with Chopper, go on a rescue mission impersonating stormtroopers. Upon landing in the Imperial ship, Chopper informs Kanan and Rex where Ezra is being held. Once reunited, Ezra decides that he and Chopper need to deactivate the gravity well generators, and Kanan and Rex, uh, Rex must rescue Commander Sato. Rex is captured is while Sato? Kanan regroups with... I think it's Sato. It's spelled S-A-T-O, okay. so I think it's I'll be Sato. I've been calling him Sato this whole time. I've been calling him Sato just because I've heard that from Inception. But oh, I've been trying that, to, that's what I'm thinking. To, yeah, I'm trying to make an effort to make Don't sure be racist. Sato. Ezra and Sato escape on a shuttle, and Kanan successfully rescues Rex, and they escape in an escape pod. Their ships get caught in the gravity well again, but it's discovered that Chopper rigged the well to pull in all of the other Imperial ships as well, which crush the main ship itself and allow for the rebels to escape. Yeah, so this is when we get you know another cool super weapon ship, kind of like the Malevolence. Uh, it's called the the Interdictor and captained by uh, Admiral Brom Titus, who is a is kind of a character I kind of like. He's kind of a, just a blustering fool, but he's 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 voiced very well. I don't I don't know who voices him, but I, I like his voice. Yeah, I think I messaged uh, just a, a movie chat we're in just. After after this episode, talking about how much I I enjoyed it, this is this may be one of my favorites from this season, and it's almost entirely because of how good of a job I think it does of like recapturing a new hope, just in in tone, um, like moments where um, obviously you have the direct references like them being aboard this imperial vessel disguised as stormtroopers. I love when they both get in the elevator, and he's like. He's like, close it, close it, close it. And, and uh, Rex is just grumbling to himself about the armor, not really paying attention. And so... Tighter than he remembered. Yeah. And, and so the other the other guy kind of comes on aboard. Um, <coughs> and uh, just a lot of... A lot of the combat just looks very much like it. Um, like, it feels like the entirety of the Death Star sequence is being referenced here. And we talked about how, you know, when the, the TIE Fighters blew up, you had that, that spark. Well... Here, you know, as, as they're shooting their blasters and they're hitting the sides of the hallways and the lights, you've got those white sparks bouncing off of everything and the smoke. It it looks like they're really just with animation recreating, yeah, like Han and Luke shooting down the hallways and stuff. And I just had a lot of fun with you know how breezy and upbeat and and, and fun the episode itself was. Yeah, I was a little sad that they never uh, shot out a camera. Like I was, like the as you said, the the, the style of shooting and fighting felt so much like that. I was constantly expecting one of them to whip around and blow a camera out of the ceiling it would have been great so basically the kind of the heart of this episode is kind of twofold you have kanan and uh, rex who still don't really like slash trust each other and 
Ezra and Commander Sato, and Sato is, thinks Ezra's an idiot child, and he just doesn't really like him that much. And so you kind of have the both of them trying to pro- prove themselves to each other over the course of this episode as they uh, work to escape and whatnot. <laughs> and it, it it always makes me smile when uh when uh, Ezra uses his job of the hut uh, pseudonym. <laughs> Uh, I like how they just latched on to that, and that's just, like, such a great recurring yeah. theme. And, I, you know, again, just because of so much of, of what I like about this being the tone and the playfulness of it, and I, I feel like they were able to do that without just feeling too, like, kiddish, like it often did in, in the first season. Um, so a lot of it made me laugh. Like, whenever they're dressed as the Stormtroopers, and they turn the corner, <laughs> and Ezra shoots them both, and it's like, oh, there was a big fight and everything. And, like, without saying anything, Chopper just play, like replays everything that happened of them getting shot. Yeah. Um, that's part of why I think Chopper's hilarious, but uh, but I love Kanan's reaction. Like, you shot us, and it's you know instantly having to try to talk himself out of it or talk himself, you know, out of seeming like the good guy. You know, there are more pressing matters. Yeah, I think my only real complaint with this episode, and this is this is a complaint I have with uh, a way more with the first season, but even at moments here is it gets annoying after we see so many instances of storm, like armed stormtroopers three feet in front of people who have no weapons just being completely taken out. That happens a couple times here, but uh, I guess it happens so often it's just something I've got to forgive. Yeah. There's another cool callback to A New Hope is where Ezra goes to basically the exact same place where uh, where Obi-Wan turned off the tractor beams in the Death Star, kind of these walkways way you know, over an open space, very dangerous. And there's a sequence where... Ezra's hanging over the edge, and Chopper comes by and just runs right over his fingers. Just, <laughs> this guy's a total jerk. How could you like this guy? He's a jerk, but I love him. Oh, I love him. And I, I love, I love the ending. I love the fact that instead of you know, completely sabotaging him, he just he, Chopper took the chance to find a way to just end them all. And I was talking about how much I really liked the animation in the halls and how they mimicked it. And, but the ending of this episode really is, to me, pretty stunning, where you've got the the gravity well pulling in all of the Imperial ships, and, and it really reminded me of Rogue One, where one yeah. of the ships makes yes. contact with it, and it's just scraping across the top. And it's, you know, some of the textures and stuff, it felt like things were just very flat in season one. Uh, but here, you know, you're seeing all the broken pieces fly up in the air, and then as it kind of implodes, and then just burst out and all of these colors the, the animation really was gorgeous in that scene and mm-hmm. it looked pretty awesome yeah there's one really dark it just feels so kind of wrong where ezra and kanan are kind of uh trapped or kind of pinned down they pull the stormtroopers out one by one and gun them down it's just i don't know something about that just felt it's cool but it just felt so wrong like these force force pulls like a, a screaming stormtrooper in the open, and just then shoot him, and then do like to three guys at a time. It just uh, it just felt weird. Hey, you gotta win, I guess. All right. Um. So next episode is Future of the Force. It's directed by Saul Ruiz and written by Bill Wolkoff. So this one opens with the, the fifth brother and seventh sister attacking a civilian transport, and they kidnap an infant and kill everyone else on board. Meanwhile, Ahsoka gets intel that the Inquisitors are searching for the kids and sends Kanan and Ezra to Takabo while she goes and investigates the uh, the transport. Um, they find uh, Ezra and Kanan find an Ithorian baby, but then are attacked by the Inquisitors uh, and then lead them on an elaborate chase throughout the apartment building. Uh, they're eventually cornered, but Ahsoka shows up and saves them. And also, I've noticed that uh, Ezra 
accidentally gives uh, the Imperial probe droid the location of the rebel base on Garel. Um, so yeah, right off the bat, again, super dark opening where we have uh, the Inquisitors board the transport and then proceed off screen, but kill everybody. Yeah. I love the way that this scene was directed. It, it felt very much um, like live action and cinematic and stuff where you, you just have like the camera just kind of wanders through everyone and you hear conversations until we zoom in on it specific individual and then when things start going wrong you just hear the panic of everyone and, and the camera moves back down the hallway and stuff it it felt like a like a disaster movie or a slash or something um something that i've seen in a live action capacity and and they man they make the the inquisitors it's pretty scary here the uh the moment that just to me felt like like it kind of it brought me back to the feeling that I would get quite often throughout Clone Wars, where I'm like, "Man, this this is a kid show," <laughs> where the mother has the baby and she's trying to open the door, and every time it opens, they use the force oh, to shut yeah. it back, and she opens it and they shut it. It's it's terrifying. And then of course, you know, he he turns around and he sees everyone out in the hall, and he just throws his like throws his, he just he throws the saber down the hallway, and and we cut to the title. It's we wish to be friends, but first there's business to attend to. Yeah, it was a it's a pretty brutal way to open it but yeah there's just there's so much dread in that scene like i said that moment with the door is just really what stuck out to me i'm like man this is this is pretty rough right now mm -hmm. but going back to the other guys it was really funny when uh as uh Kaden and ezra are in one of the compartments uh talking about the mission he's like all right well ezra's already briefed and he opens the door and ezra falls through I do like how they're, you know, Ezra's growing and maturing as a character, but they're not trying to do it too fast. And, you know, when he has, when he has moments where it's just him and Sabine or it's where he feels like he's being left out, he kind of reverts back to the kid who's, you know, awkward and, and, and trying to make sure that he's, he's with the big picture. Or does stupid things like reveal <laughs> the secret location of their base. <laughs> yeah, so the majority of this episode is them in an apartment building being stalked by the two Inquisitors and basically just running in circles trying to get away um and again you know these inquisitors are scary and they're no match for them okay there, there's one moment i will grant to chopper in this episode is where he's playing pickaboo with a baby that is adorable <laughs> you'll come around i i don't know how you haven't already but you'll come around <sighs> he's a psychopath that's why <laughs> he's a psychopath but he's a hilarious psychopath but uh and I love the explanation for why a droid could be a psychopath. Like, you know, you have that line in Revenge of the Sith where it's like, no loose wire jokes. Well, now we actually have somebody who's, who has a loose wire, like quite literally. But uh, one of the parts that I really liked, it just, it felt so dangerous was, you know, when they're, they're all in the room together hiding and then the lightsaber pierces the, pierces the floor and they back up and then the saber pierces the door that they're leaning against. And yeah, you know, there's just a sense of danger. And, and we know that none of these leads are going to die, but I was still kind of like on the edge of my seat as, as every saber came through, I kind of like jolted and it just, you do a really good job of making this animation, like feel very real and tangible and, and, and dangerous. And this is, this is the one where Ezra's in the vent and they're stabbing through, right? Yeah, like I, I, I've, I've seen that exact sequence in a dozen films, and it is never not terrifying. I was about to say the same thing. Like, how many times do we see like a, a knife, a sword, whatever? But every single time, every time, like it pierces through. I'm always like, oh man, that was close. Oh, that was close. Like, you know, it, it always gets me. Um, and then we move to the climax, which is just amazing. Uh, we, they're all uh, Ezra, Zeb, and Kane are cornered, and they try to fight, but they're really no match. And then the door opens, and out of like pure white light, Ahsoka walks in, and the music is so epic. 
and she you know takes the inquisitors to task and they you know they're they're not very good in comparison to her and just the the way that the way the fighting the choreo- choreography is done is just gorgeous I, oh she has white lightsabers um <sighs> which you know going back to the you know kind of a, a gray jedi she's not a jedi she was you know she left the order she doesn't identify as a jedi and so her, her lightsabers aren't they're, they're kind of just pure white kind of signifying how she's she's not she's neither a sith nor jedi Oh, the interesting thing is reading the Ahsoka book is that she got her Kyber crystals from an Inquisitor, which is why they're they're mm-hmm. not colored. This makes me really want to read the books, um, especially knowing how much Pablo Hidalgo loves to like interconnect them all. And we'll talk about that later. There's a another part later on in some of the episodes that it's really that really makes me want to read the extended universe. Yes, yeah, so it just ends with a bang with Ahsoka, you know, getting a chance to kick some butt again after. You know, all this time. And that shot of her walking for the first time is so cool. And you've got, the, like, the snowy bed. Like, the, it's kind of snowing um, as they fight. And that the first time she ignites this, like, the white sabers, to me, is, like, almost like that, that first reveal of the Maul double-bladed lightsaber, yeah. like, level for me. Where I'm like, oh, wow, this is different. And then the cho- the, the choreography and just the, the way the fight is staged is, is a lot more... In, a, lot, a lot more acrobatic and just cool than uh, most of the fights I've been in the series so far against really stepping back to that Clone Wars style. Yeah, she you know she fights like, you know, Clone Wars Ahsoka, which is super cool. Uh, and I love at the end of the episode, after things are kind of wrapping up, and Ahsoka explains, you know, after, you know, they, they realize that they're after the the children who exhibit force sensitivity, she directly references the children of the force episode. Oh yeah. Uh, which I yeah. thought was super cool. You know, she's seen this before. And, and I love how throughout this, this show in particular, we get to see Jedi and Sith and force users who are at all these different stages of training. And at the bottom, you have Ezra, you know, he can fight, but he's not great yet. Then you have Kanan who's you know, pretty accomplished, but he's generally not a match for an inquisitor. And even, but then the Inquisitors are not a match for Ahsoka because you know she had obviously all that training and wartime experience, and then there's Vader who's like better than everyone else, and it kind of just shows how not to rant about the last Jedi or the Force Awakens, but it's just how just how stupid so much of the complaints about you know Rey being able to fight Kylo because looking at these fights, Kylo might be able to hold his own against Ezra. None of the other guy like Katie could probably kick his butt. The Inquisitors definitely was like you know, he's he's not trained either, and it's just cool. We just see these various levels of training and ability, and and just how and what it, you know what it takes to to be that uh, that good with a blade. Yeah, you de- it's very much more like raw with with Kylo. You almost wonder how much Luke was able, to, how much Luke even really wanted to train him in terms of combat. Yeah, but we will we will speak of that later. Yeah. <laughs> One fun, fun little thing is that. Uh, D. Bradley Baker voiced the Ithorian baby. <laughs> oh, nice. I watched a video on him actually uh, on YouTube just breaking down uh, how so much of his voice acting is, is just animal sounds and, and creature effects and stuff like that. So it doesn't surprise me that they go to him for stuff like that. So the next episode is Legacy. It is directed by Matt Zwire, uh, written by Henry Gilroy. So uh, Ezra has a vision of his parents in prison and of himself fighting. Uh, and of a white loath cat. He informs Kanan and Hera, who reveal to Ezra that they've discovered his parents have been imprisoned and that they've been attempting to track them down but have been unsuccessful thus far. Uh, it is discovered that a massive escape attempt was made by prisoners of the Empire 
and Ezra uses the force on a on a list of prisoners involved, though their names and information is blacked out. Uh, he has another vision again of a Lothcat and focuses in on prisoner X10. Um, at the same time, Agent Callus and the two Inquisitors join forces to go to Varel based on Callus's intel that that's where the rebellion is located. The rebels are soon attacked by the Empire, and after a brief skirmish, this, the crew of the Ghost is able to escape along with the remainder of the rebellion. Kanan and Ezra end up leaving for Lothal, where upon arriving, Ezra sees the same white Lothcat from his vision. Uh, the Lothcat eventually leads them to who is discovered to be Prisoner X-10, whose real name is Ryder Azadi. Um, Azadi explains that he used to be the governor of Lothal before he was imprisoned for supporting the Bridger broadcast. Uh, he tells Ezra that... Um, it was Ezra's broadcast that inspired the escape attempt, but unfortunately his parents died during the escape because they were going to be the last out. Uh, by himself, Ezra sees a vision of his parents who tell him to remain strong. And after the vision, Canaan comforts Ezra by telling him that life does not end at death, but changes forms and that his parents will always be with him. Yeah, what, one thing I noticed that I didn't notice the first time is how the, the Loath Cat kind of comes in whenever... Ezra's having a vision about someone who has died. Um, now, that, 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 that might, <laughs> an animal standing in for a dead person might come back later, so keep that in mind for as we go into the season. But that, I think this is the first mm. time we see that. And then, then I, I love how when they fi they find that message that they of the list of prisoners, and then uh, Kanan and Herrick kind of take Ezra aside and show him all the research they've been doing independently to try and find his parents. It was it's really sweet and touching. Just you know, they they really are a family, and you know they they, they didn't tell him because they had they had no information. But just to see how much you know this personal struggle for Ezra really how much how much they care about this struggle Ezra is going through, you know, as a family coming together to try and help him uh, find it. It was really touching. Yeah, you pretty much said everything I had in my notes. Where it was, it was really sweet to know that, you know, during all of these conflicts and in between episodes, there's, there's been this whole other project that they've been working on off screen to try to help them out in any way they can. And, and you know, we've seen them kind of earn favors before. And, you know, like in in a rebellion, you know, you, you want as many favors as you can. And to know that that everything that they've ever accrued and, and all of the contacts they have, they're like they're burning through everything to try to help out who is essentially their, like, you know, a new family member, I thought. I thought it went a long way to, to establish, you know, the fact that when they're, you know, if they're ever like, you know, this is a family, not a crew, it actually does feel earned and not cheesy because because that's what they, you know, function as at this point. And, um, and we see Ezra kind of go a bit crazy. So th this whole, whole thing about his lost parents has really, really affected him. Like we saw that um, back on in season one where he kind of would lose it at a SIBO or when he <laughs> calls up the giant uh, fry knock <laughs> you know, that this this is a really deep pain for him and that the hope of finding his parents again he just kind of goes crazy and there's like this is really great awesome tracking shot where he just charges the Imperials kind of deflecting bolts and like, just throws callus against the wall and just just completely taking charge because everything all he has is he needs to find his parents again I, I like the fact that, you know, we we feel the effects of, of him learning about what happened throughout this episode. Um, and then to talk about something else, one of the things that I liked was uh, the continuing, like, threat of the Empire. You know, when they when they arrive to Veril, it's, like, in full force. And they're, you know, they're down all the streets. And, um, 
it doesn't feel like a couple of, you know, stormtroopers are just going to walk around. You can knock their heads together and move on. Um, kind of like how it felt in, in the Siege of Lothal, where they're they're really here and they're actually posing a dan- like a dangerous threat to the to the group. Yeah, and uh, just the whole battle of the city is really cool. I'm very again the scale, like like just the way the Clone Wars would kind of up the uh, the ante for the scale every season. This one is like is something completely new for this show. And the da- like the sense of danger that you feel is justified, you know, because as they're trying to leave, one of the transports actually goes down, and as they're trying to leave, you know, they get caught in that tractor beam. And there's a lot of really cool shots when they're caught. Um, as this other ship comes down right in front of them. But, uh, yeah, you know, the, the threat feels justified you know, as we see this huge battle being waged. And then there's really, really another really nice scene when um, Kane and Ezra are going back to Lothal and they kind of just sit around and kind of commiserate over their losses where, you know, Ezra's lost his parents and Kanan lost uh, his master, Devil Bulava, uh, you know, right around when he was around the same age as Ezra. And just, you know, a, a nice scene of connection between them. And I, I like that, you know, Ezra, Ezra has that line where he's like, you know, if, if we don't stand up for them, who will? And as soon as he says it, he, he just breaks down and starts sobbing. It's like he can't even keep himself composed. Yeah. Um, uh, that was a, like a nice character moment for him. Yeah. And so uh, we meet a new character with the escape prisoner, a writer, Azadi, who is uh, voiced, voiced by the wonderful Clancy Brown, uh, who voiced uh, oh, yeah. Savage Press in... Uh, the Clone Wars. And it looks like and, they even kind of modeled it after him. <laughs> he does look like him. Uh, and he, he's, he's, I, I like him. He's kind of he was the former governor of Lothal, and uh, he was in prison with the um, the Bridgers. And he tells a really really touching story about how they engineered the escape, and they stayed behind to make sure everyone is out, and they were killed. And Ryder was able to escape because of their sacrifice. And then another t- like there's this this whole episode is full of really sweet scenes where. Ezra goes out onto the, like after he learns there uh, his parents are, are definitely dead. He kind of goes out onto the rock and is watching the moons and uh, his parents come and kind of talk to him and um, after they they kind of come and talk to him and then they disappear and then kind of Kanan comes out and they just stand together watching the moon and it's just very very sweet. Like this 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 very this, very very Star Wars in its sweetness I think in that moment. Yeah, th- this show like one of my Christmas is that it for the most part, it doesn't have, even when it gets dark, it usually doesn't have a lot of depth or, and, and real meat with the characters, but like moments like this would really show that, that this show still could, uh, could, you know, hit us, you know, give us a gut punch with these characters. And it was really nice. Next episode is a princess on Lothal. Uh, this one's directed by Bosco NG and written by Stephen Melching. Uh, and so it, it opens up and Ezra and Kane are still with Ryder and they get word that an agent is coming to Lothal to donate three hammerhead corvettes from Bill Organa to the Rebel Rebel Alliance. Kanan and Ezra uh, disguise themselves as Imperials to go meet uh, Leia Organa. Um, but before they can make the trade, the Imperials show up and lock the ships down. And then uh, Azadi is captured, so they have to go and rescue him. And then they all return uh, to break out the ships with a lot of trickery and kind of bravado and... Eventually, uh, it ends with uh, Leia ye- yelling at the poor Imperial Lieutenant uh, for having her ship stolen. <laughs> so we get to obviously meet Leia Organa, and she's voiced by Julie Dolan. I think she does a, you know, she's not exactly like uh, Carrie Fisher was in The New Hope. I, she, I think she does a really great job of just capturing that, just 
the spunkiness that Leia had and the way she just instantly takes charge of every situation and get, kind of just whips everyone around her into shape to go along with her plan. Um, yeah, I, I, I think they do a really good job just capturing the essence of her character. Yeah. And I thought she did sound a good bit like her and uh, and that, that coupled with the, uh, the design, I think they, they, I mean, this is the closest we'll get to, to Carrie Fisher's look within the, the designs of Rebels. I thought, you know, you could look at, at just the image of her face and be like, I bet that that's supposed to be Carrie Fisher. Um, so, yeah, I, they did a good job of making me believe that this is that same person. And I love that the Rebels have, like, she's coming here with the, for the express purpose of donating these ships to the Rebel Alliance, but the Rebels still have to steal them. So, uh, you know, it, it can't be linked back to the government of Alderaan. <laughs> and I love how when they they land, the Imperial Lieutenant comes. He's like, "Ah, oh, yes, you know, your, your ships have a you know a very bad tendency to get stolen by the rebels, so we're going to have to lock them down for you. You know, don't you feel safe?" I, I love you know that that all makes sense too. You know that they're like you know you can't when I think it's Ezra who asks you know why why didn't you just give them to us you know out in space in orbit or something, and you know they're the um, people like Leia and, and Bale they're having to operate within the confines of, of being members of the Imperial Senate. You know, because we think of this era, we think of A New Hope when Tarkin walks in and, you know, the last remnants of the Imperial Senate have been swept away. Uh, but we're living in an era where, you know, they still have some sort of power, um, but they also, that also means because of their position, they're having to, to like, find loopholes and, and things like that. Things like that. So the fact that they they have to go to this extent to to make sure you know, that if it's traced back to them, they, they're tracing the history back to a theft and not an exchange. And then when they go to uh, rescue Azadia, uh, they have to they have to be captured by the ghost crew to kind of reunite. <laughs> and Deb uh, really enjoys punching Ezra. And <laughs> yeah, I love it when he's smiling. When, like whenever he's first told to make it look good, he doesn't have any words, just kind of has a big grin across his face. And there's a nice scene between uh, Leia and uh, Ezra as they're kind of talking about just the, the cost of war and whether it's worth it. You know, this is it's going to be a long fight and you have no idea if you're going to win. But And then there's a, you have in the background Leia's theme kind of cut from the uh, original trilogy comes in and kind of just diving into, you know, the, her mindset behind uh, this fight. So then they go, they go on a full-scale attack uh, on the, the um, on the, uh, the walkers and all the Imperials around the, the uh, Corvettes. And uh, this is really cool image of a stormtrooper, a stormtrooper wielding a lightsaber where Kanan's running at the, uh, the walker. It just, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, we, we've seen lightsabers a hundred times, but something about a stormtrooper running with a lightsaber is just so cool looking. <laughs> yeah, so that was actually something that I thought looked kind of cool, but I, I wasn't a huge fan of, what the, the, the stormtrooper or the kind of legs off? No, no, that was cool. It was, it was a chopping, chopping through the legs. Or to me, it's just why didn't Luke do that in, in Empire? You know, uh, well, well Luke could of... barely grab a lightsaber at that point. I mean, like, King was having to force jump up in the air to get the thin part. Yeah, and Luke's an idiot. He <laughs> didn't think of it. With zipping up on that line looks cool. Yes, exactly. And I like how Ezra's still kind of awkwardly trying to impress the girls. Really. <laughs> He tries to force grab the gun and knocks himself in the head. See, it's bits like that that might very well on paper be for the kids, but end up getting a good chuckle from me. I think my favorite part of a 
of the the attacks and the escape and everything is uh, as as Hera comes down and the ghost and she's got Zeb who's just blasting the side of the ATATs with those missiles until it walks over and then at the very end whenever Ryder is in one of the hammerheads and he uses the jets to just completely yeah. knock the other one off and like it gets on its hind neck uh, hind legs and just falls over looks awesome. So the next episode is The Protector of Concord Dawn, uh, directed by Brad Rao and written by Henry Gilroy and Kevin Hopps. So while discussing options for hyperspace lanes, Sabine suggests the Concord Dawn system, home of a Mandalorian colony called the Protectors. Having helped train clones during the Clone Wars, the Rebels hoped this group could potentially join them. Hera leads a squad of fighters along with Sabine to speak with the Mandalorians. However, they are attacked and forced to flee, leaving Hera badly injured in the attack. Angry for what they did, Sabine hides aboard the Phantom as Kanan takes it to try once again with a diplomatic solution uh, with the Mandalorians led by Fen Rao, whom Kanan fought with in the Clone Wars. Uh, Kanan meets with Rao, who rejects um, the invitation to the Rebellion. During their discussions, Sabine is discovered and detonates the explosive she's planted on all the ships except for Rao's, whose ship was too far away. Kanan is able to capture Rao from his fighter and take him prisoner. Uh, knowing that if informed of a rebel presence, the Empire would overrun the system, Rao tells his men not to contact the Empire, and it ends with an uneasy alliance out of necessity established between the Protectors and with the Rebellion. Alliance meaning he's a captive. Yeah. And this one, this episode, I think, is really where I start to appreciate Sabine. She has a lot more weight and emotion um, in this episode, where just how furious she is at um Sabine uh, Hera being injured and just she's basically the entire episode looking for a fight with these Mandalorians who hurt her friend um, I think it, it gives her a lot more weight than she's had previously yeah and I think for once her history becomes more than just something mentioned you know before like at this point it was you know you know I was a Mandalorian I I, I was an Imperial cadet I was this and now we're actually seeing it become a part of her present character, you know, where she's she's invoking those Mandalorian, um, I guess, you know, calls to or to duel and, and things like that, where she clearly knows the history and, and she knows what to say to, to get the respect of the others, at least for what she's doing. So it feels like they're making use of all of this background they give her. Yeah, I do love that scene where she's kind of captured. She just kind of stands up for herself. And, you know, I demand this, you know, ancient mandalorian right and you know kane is the entire time kane's trying to talk her down um from this this journey of revenge i like how it, the whole t- time it looks like she's out to kill rao and then she challenges him to kind of oh, basically a western quick draw duel <laughs> but actually but you know she actually only shoots the gun out of his hand she i guess she she was playing some of it obviously a lot of that rage was real but she wasn't going as far as it seemed at, at first, I thought Kanan's desire, you know, like, we've got to be, dip- like, diplomatic about this. I was like, I is this really Kanan? Does this make sense with where he's at? Where, you know, he's the one saying, like, no. I, you know, even after Hera's been almost killed, we still have to go and try to talk with him. But then to discover that this was a guy he actually, who, like, he had fought with and who had saved him in the Clone Wars. I think that kind of, you know, when he's talking with him at the table and he's like, you saved my life once. I'm returning the favor. It made more sense. Yeah. And I love that the Mandalorians are, are a real threat here. Like the stormtroopers are bumbling idiots. You can do anything you do will outsmart them. 
But like you know, they, they, when they separate and Kanan goes to try and talk to Rao, and and uh, Sabine is um, playing with the charges. Like Sabine is almost immediately caught, and Ezra's like, and Kanan sneaks in the tent, and Rao and Rao's like without even looking, just kind of, hey, how you doing? how you doing? And it's just these guys, they don't play, and they they are every bit as dangerous as our guys. Yeah, and I love their ships from the opening scene where their wings with the guns spin around the cockpit, but the cockpit remains fixed. Mm-hmm. It's super cool, like just design. Um, <coughs> it almost it almost just looks like an A wing, um, but one that that's a, a bit thinner to allow for a lot of those rotations. Just with the awesomeness enhanced. Yeah, and I, I I like the character of Rao. I do too. He's a really he's just ki- really cool. I like he just he just kind of wants to talk, and you know he I mean he's he's still like Mandalorians are always frustrating because they have no morality. They're just like we serve Mandalore, that's it. And if we think you're a threat to Mandalore, we'll kill you. And even if you're not a threat, we'll probably still kill you. And. But he's still he's still very cool and honorable about it. Just I like the conversation and I, I, his voice. The voice actor is really good. Uh, Kevin McKidd. Yeah, he just feels very reasonable and down to earth, despite being a crazy murder murderous warrior cult guy. That's what I like the most about it was just how reasonable he felt. Like he feels like he's someone that even in a bad situation, so long as you at least had the opportunity to talk, you know, there there's still someone here who's who's got who's of a, a rational mind. Who's going to be willing to negotiate? And his demeanor is is really cool. You know, they they play up a lot more on the on the Western stuff with a quick draw. But you know, as, as he as Cannon enters the uh, the doorway and he sees him, he's, he's kind of like had his head down at the table and he pulls the gun out, doesn't really look at where he's aiming. And as soon as he hears it's Cannon and it's a Jedi, he's like, oh, okay. And he kind of you know he spins his gun around a little bit and holsters it. He's, this is a very cool, relaxed demeanor. Until, until he jumps in his ship and swears to kill everybody. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that oh gosh, that moment in the ship is amazing where Kanan jumps onto it as it's flying and disables it and rips him out of the, the cockpit and jumps out. It's just really awesome kind of Clone Wars Jedi move. This, in fact, this whole episode felt a lot like a Clone Wars episode. Uh, what's the one? Um, a Friend in Need, I think, where Ahsoka and, uh, and uh, what's the Lux? Lux yeah. It just, it just felt yeah. really getting back into that style. And one cool tidbit is that we learned that uh that house uh, the house Ren is part of uh or no clan Ren which is Sabine's family is part of House Vizsla. Like as soon as they learn her name, they're like, oh, she's Death Watch, and we learned that actually you know she her family was part of Death Watch, which is very interesting. Yeah, you know this gave us a lot of cool tidbits in a Mandalorian culture where you know houses or uh, family names belong to specific houses, and specific houses are rivals to others, and so there's this you know this. And, like sense of antagonism between the protectors and the death watch it's just cool learning a bit more about that so next episode is legends of the lasat this one is uh, directed by saul ruiz and written by matt mishnovets uh using a tip from hondo ezra leaves the ghost crew on a mission to save some lasat refugees from the empire uh they rescue him but things go wrong and hondo is captured and probably betrays them meanwhile the lasats tell of an ancient prophecy that will lead them to a, a new world for their people and somehow, using Zeb's bow rifle, they they go into hyperspace uh, through a ring of collapsed stars, and they find the original Lasat homeworld. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this one. I, I do like uh, that uh, Ezra kind of 
he has his own tip and he's the one leading the crew on this mission. And he knows not to say who it is at first. Yeah. <laughs> I seriously I mean I'm like you. And uh, Hondo's Hondo's Hondo. He's uh, just awesome. And I love that when they when they find the Lasats, they're being captured by the Imperials and they come and rescue them and Hondo shows them like, oh yeah, I betrayed them to the Empire, but I knew you could rescue them. So I, now I have my reward from the Empire and my my finder's fee. But <laughs> does this mean I'm not getting my finder's fee? You never were. Perfect answer. I am so proud of you right now. I have never had a student learn this quickly. Yeah, so uh, just great Hondo stuff. Previously, we were led to believe that uh, Zeb was the last Lasat. As it turns out, there are at least two more. And uh, the whole thing is surrounding a prophecy about a Lasat homeworld. And Zeb is like, is not having any of it. He really just does not like it. And... We kind of get some discussion where uh, the kind of the elder uh, Lasat woman talking about the Ashla is what gave him the prophecy, which we find out is the spirit of the galaxy, kind of, which is essentially the force. It was it's kind of a really cool tidbit into um, how different cultures view the force, where they call it the Ashla. Um, and they don't necessarily have the force per se, but. They still have this some kind of relationship that, that enables them to have this prophecy. Which leads to a thing I really dislike is so in order to find there's the, the so the prophecy was that the you know the, the original Lasat homeworld, Lasan, was destroyed by the Empire, and the prophecy was that they would find a new one, Lirasan. And so there's like these three characters, the child, the warrior, and the fool. Um, each one kind of plays their part. And in the end, they come to a star cluster and they have to fly through it. So they use Zeb's, they basically plug Zeb's bow rifle into the nav computer of the ghost and it somehow navigates them through the wormhole or the, the collapsed star cluster. It's just like, I don't, I'm cool with the, the aspect of a di the force revealing itself differently to the Lasat where they, they have their prophecy and all that. Okay. But it's just just how does a bow rifle know how to fly a ship? It's just yeah. That part the only reason I'm even a little bit forgiving of that is just because of how like stunning the sequence itself is. <laughs> we'll get there. I'm not, I'm not done uh, complaining yet. It's just <laughs> it's just like the, 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 there's mysticism, but this is like this is using a tool, a piece of metal, and it, it's somehow like why does the force have to be channeled through the bow rifle? And how does the like just if it's the force, why does it need the bow rifle? It just that whole sequence, just the, the the logic and all of this, they, they put so much effort in trying to explain it. It's just like this makes no sense. And even I wasn't even on board with the whole like the fool, the child, and the warrior, especially when they cop out like, oh, we were all three of these stages at some point, and blah blah. I'm like, this prophecy sucks. You guys are lame. <laughs> yeah. Um. But going back to what you said, that sequence is amazing, and the music. Oh my gosh. It's it's like this really powerful cello. Uh, music, which it sounds, it almost sounds like it's like from the Master Commander soundtrack or something, 
but it's just really it does it doesn't sound like Star Wars at all. But like as they're flying into the um the wormhole, like the the ties are being disintegrated and the ship. Oh, like, that shot of the ties just kind of falling apart and being sucked yeah, in. Yeah, just amazing. We we see like the, the the lightning on the staff and them flying through. It's just this really gorgeous uh, cello music kind of going over it. Like not Star Wars at all, but really stunning. The logic of the scene doesn't work at all, but visually, it's all, visually and audibly, it's all pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and another problem is like, like Zeb for the entire time is like, I do not believe this prophecy. I want nothing to do with it. And then all of a sudden, he's all on board. And there's like, no, there's no transition getting him from where he was to where, like from from disbelief to belief. It's, it's just like the the, the emotions and the, the the plot don't really work for me at all. I I don't really like it, but. I, I do have to praise that sequence, and I have been listening to that 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 track uh, a lot the last week. Yeah, it's pretty good. There were a couple other moments that I I thought were just kind of fun. Uh, mainly earlier, while Hondo was still involved, <laughs> uh, I love when when Hondo calls Ezra. He's like, "You may have some stormtroopers on your back. How close?" And then a shot goes by his head. Pretty close. <laughs> And just the fact that he just betrays everyone at least once in this episode. So the next episode is The Call. It was directed by Mel Zwire and written by Bill Wolkoff. Uh, the crew of the Ghosts travel to an asteroid gas refinery to stock up on fuel when they get caught in a herd of Pergil, large whale-like creatures. Hera wishes to open fire on them, but Kanan advises against it, and Ezra says they should fly with the direction of the herd instead of against it. Um, TIE fighters begin attacking the Pergil, but Ezra and Kanan take them out quickly. They discover the Pergil are headed toward the same direction as the asteroid refinery, so they follow them. Ezra, and Sab- Ezra Sabine, and Kanan land on the f- refinery where they are quickly attacked by the workers employed by the Empire. Ezra stops Sabine from destroying some of the gas as a diversion, claiming the Pergil are connected to it. Ezra falls into the pit of gas, but lands on a Pergil who he makes a connection with through the Force, with the help of the rest of the herd, Ezra fends off the Imperial presence on the asteroid. The rebels decide to destroy the refinery, de- denying the Empire access to it. And Ezra explains that the Pergil rely on the gas to feed on, and it allows them to travel through hyperspace. And I have one thing to say about this episode. Screw space whales. I hate them. <laughs> I like it. Right, next episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have a whole lot of notes on this one, to be honest. I like the imagery of it. I think it's cool of like flying side by side with these huge whale-like creatures. I don't like it when they start taking off in a hyperspace and when he makes that connection with them and his eyes start glowing and all this. I'm like, what is this? This is weird. Like we've we've established that these things are too stupid to fly around a spaceship. They'll just bump right into it. Yet somehow we're supposed to also believe they're sentient and force-sensitive. It's just... This is this isn't free willy. Like, we have uh, all these sentient species in Star Wars. I don't need semi-sentient animals. See, I'm not even opposed to that. It's just I don't like how they portrayed the intelligence. Where, like you said, they're so dumb they're just gonna bump into other ships and destroy stuff on accident, like a, a bunch of bumbling idiots. And they have the ability. The, the part that really <laughs> got me was. You know, when, when Ezra makes his connection and he's like using them to go and they're plowing through all the ships and they're biting the main bad guy and eating him. He's like, you're intelligent enough to talk with someone and like to, to communicate that way through the force. But you're not like, all you found out was, hey guys, you should probably start attacking them if they're attacking you. Like it's, it's really dumb. And 
I, I, I do not like the visual of them entering hyperspace. I'm like, what is this? This is so silly. This, this is something that we that they found through like technology. It's not something that creatures should just be able to like. Oh, it's time for me to to accelerate my mass through hyperspace. It feels like Doctor Who. It does just does not feel like. Star Maybe Wars. that's why I dislike Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, yeah. It... And even a lot of the plot stuff, aside from my problem with all the Purgle nonsense, is the whole episode itself feels contrived. And I typically have almost no problem with Hera. And this isn't a, a big problem. And I don't even know if it's a, it's a problem with her. But to me, not everybody needs some sort of tragic backstory to be mad about everything. Like, you know, <laughs> in this where it's like, oh, wow, she she seems upset about the Purgle. I bet that there's some sort of unnecessary backstory to her like her and, and all of that's really said is like yeah i had a couple friends who ran into like who crashed into him before because they're idiots it's like which i do kind of like that in just implied history <laughs> that there are big stupid space walls out there that you got to be careful that you don't crash into but to me it adds like it's cool world like lore building but like what does it add to this episode do we Nothing. does this episode even change if hair is like okay yeah well let's be on board it's like it's more that the kids every episode has to end with one of the characters learning something yeah i don't even see with the but it didn't even have that ob, like overtly obvious moment where it's like and this is when she learned her lesson she's kind of like whatever we'll follow him if it gets the job done i don't even hate him that much however <laughs> I, I, I do like the the, the, the kind of the, the opening concept of the the ghost being almost entirely out of fuel which is something we've never seen in star wars before like just like oh wait ships use oh yeah ships use fuel <laughs> And it reminds me a lot of the Firefly episode out of gas. Um, it just I just like how it's it's done where everyone's just kind of sitting there shivering and it it does feel very claustrophobic. You realize you are in space and this you know once friendly ship is now becoming more and more un you know, un uh, un um, livable. Yeah. Other than that, uh, yellow tie, yellow half wing tie fighters are pretty cool. I, I, I totally agree that hyperspace purgles is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> all right so next episode is homecoming this is directed by bosco ng and written by steven melching and so we we start off with the rebellion is just simply losing way too many fighters and and, fi- and more importantly uh, fighter pilots so they arrange with champs and doula who is Hera's father to help steal the imperial carrier over ryloth uh, but once they infiltrate the ship he betrays them and tries to blow it up uh, but eventually they're able to convince him to help to help them steal it instead and they escape with the carrier. You know, as just kind of a fan of military tactics, it is kind of cool that they acknowledge that you know, these fighters, you know, without are so much more vulnerable without vulnerable without support. So, like in retreat, it's, it'd be so much safer if they could have a carrier to house them all as they, you know, as they jump into hyperspace and whatnot. Uh, so, you know, it starts off really dark with that that what the damaged A wing trying to latch on, then being destroyed in the last minute. So it really kind of sets up the stakes of why they need this um this ship, and then of course the, the big thing about this episode is that we we uh, meet Cham Syndulla again, who was uh you know a very important character in the in the Clone Wars series, and I had never put two and two together, Harris Syndulla, Cham Syndulla. So you know when it, we it's finally revealed that this guy's her father, it's like yeah, it's obvious, but it was a really cool surprise. I thought yeah, and I, I always like you know cool connections like that to the Clone Wars and. And, you know, they, they directly reference, like, the, the charge that he and Mace Windu made, and they gave it a name and everything. And, 
and that's cool. And you kind of understand why Kanan, who is, you know, <laughs> younger then, would just deifying all of these other great, these, you know, generals that the Jedi were and, and the people they fought with, you know, why he would kind of attach or find himself, you know, attached to Cham and kind of making a hero out of him. And she's his lady friend's dad. That's kind of important, too. <laughs> and I love how terrifying he's when he first meets He's like, yeah, this is Ezra's Epsomate, and he's pointing out the wrong one with each name. And when, you know, he's, he's constantly, you know, he asks Ezra how he looks and everything. And he's like, what is wrong? He's like, nothing's wrong. Just stop acting nervous. He's like, I'm not acting <laughs> Yeah. Um, but also, I, I think it's really cool that we get Cham Sindula is, like, even more bitter and disillusioned than he was. Like, he was, he was super unhelpful and just really just angry in the Clone Wars. And it makes sense, you know, considering that he fought along, he was so hesitant to fight alongside the uh, the Republic because he, he was saying, you know, how long before I'm fighting you? And that's exactly what happened, you know, the, the Republic turns to the Empire and now he's been fighting them ever since. So he, he spent the last, you know, 15 years fighting for the freedom of Ryloth and he's very, you know, just a very angry, bitter character. Similar to the, um, the Mandalorians, he's only concerned about the good of Ryloth. And, you know, he, he wants to destroy the carrier because it's been harassing his people. So if it blows up in the sky, you know, his whole planet will see it and he'll hopefully rally them to his cause. So you know, he he could not care less that the rebellion needs this carrier to, um, you know, to continue their fight. All he cares about, you know, is this tiny little speck in the galaxy. He only cares about Ryloth. Yeah, I, I love that conversation where, you know, he talks about... um how the, you know, it, the Republic became the Empire. And I, it does add more weight to that conversation in Clone Wars where he says, you know, how much longer before I'm fighting you? Um, so, yeah, it, you know, you almost understand why he would just be so, so of the mind where he's only going to listen to himself because in his mind, he's justified, you know. He, it's time for him to just start looking out for himself uh, and for his people. And, and despite the fact that, you know, like, that he knows how much that would help the Rebellion, he also knows how much, sim- like, the weight symbolism can carry, you yeah. know. Just what it would mean to see it blow up in the sky, what that would do for his people. Uh, you kind of get why someone who's just become so in- so bitter um, over something like this and is just so focused on one singular thing, why he would do that. Uh, so I, I, like, I like that it made sense with who he was before and, you know, where we, where we catch up with him now. And I love that there's a really contentious relationship between him and Hera. Like they're not even speaking. Uh, like she does not want to work with him. And they have, a, they have an argument where basically he he hates the fact that she is fighting for the galaxy, you know, rather than Ryloth. And I like that you know, she slips back into, uh, you know, the, the French Twi'lek accent as she's kind of really getting incredibly upset with him and arguing. It was kind of a cool little touch because you know, she's had a basically, you know, an American accent. But I guess she's... I guess she's hiding it or maybe just kind of when she's upset. It was just it was an interesting little touch. I thought it was just, you know, like maybe maybe it would get through to him if she just kind of reverted back to the way they would have talked before. Oh, interesting. I, I, I saw it as kind of her being upset and losing control. Huh. As Like the episode as a whole, I, I did enjoy it for the most part. There were a lot of cool moments. I, I thought Ezra and Kanan racing down the hallway as all the doors oh, were closing yeah. was awesome as they were like force throwing the other through. That that just looks super cool. I think my my biggest complaint, um, and I th- I think it's it's earned much more here than it was with uh, is it Tetsuo, 
uh, Sabine's sister word. Ketu. It feels like, you know, we, we you re or you introduce this character from one of our main people's past and and they're kind of rival at first and then you know, they they end up having to work together and by the end it's like all buddy buddy shaking hands and stuff. But in this one's defense, I, I do think because of the history we have with the Clone Wars and the fact that they the the mission itself just allowed for reconciliation in a way that the other one didn't. I'm more forgiving, but it, it just feels like twice in a row now where like bitter enemies become rivals over the course of an episode. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes that if this were a Clone Wars episode, it would have ended with Hera and Cham being like more, even more bitter at each other than ever. Um, and that would have been the real, like, because like we go in, they they literally betray them and stun them all. And, you know, they have to you know, fight each other to get control of the ship again. And then she just walks up to him and, and talks to him. And he's like, okay, I'm helping you now. And it just, it did not feel earned, especially knowing how bitter and, you know, how stubborn this character is and self-assured he is. It did not feel earned that he would change his mind. I, I would rather have he physically overpower him and steal the ship. And he's just kind of left behind lonely and bitter again. I think it would have been a more uh, emotionally truthful episode. Yeah, I wish Rebels was okay with the fact that not everybody has to shake hands at the end of the episode. And yet, to, you know, the more you, the more history you put into a conflict, the more work you have to do to resolve it. So when when you emphasize the fact that they've been at odds for so long, and you rely on what we know of them from the Clone Wars, I think you have to do you have you have to make sure you know that that everything you do now lines up with what you've just told us about. And I think, like you said, this is where like maybe the 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 kid aspect of the show might come in, and it's like, okay, we're friends now. Yeah. Uh, the next episode is uh, the honorable ones. Yay! It was uh, directed by Brad Rao and written by Kevin Hopps, based on Rebel Intelligence. The Ghost Crew confirms that the Empire was building something big, orbiting Geonosis. It is then discovered that all life on Geonosis is wiped out. The ghost lands on the hangar of the construction module orbiting Geonosis, but it's revealed that Callus, along with several stormtroopers, were waiting for them. All the rebels but, uh, escape but Zed, who stays to fight and plans on using an escape pod. Zed attempts to use the escape pod but is attacked by Callus, and both are aboard the pod as it ejects towards Geonosis, and during the scuffle it's damaged and reroutes to one of the moons of Geonosis. On the moon, Zeb decides to spare Callus since he's unarmed and with a broken leg. Zeb and Callus are forced to survive together long enough for the Empire or the crew of the Ghost to find them. Uh, a level of mutual respect grows between the two as they both assist the other in escaping the pit that they crashed in, which was occupied by a group of large creatures. As night passes, the Ghost arrives to rescue Zeb, who offers Callus the chance to join him and that he'll and assures him he'll be treated fairly. Callus decides to take his chances with the Empire. After being rescued, he sits alone on his bed in his quarters, contemplating all that had happened. I think this might be my favorite episode this season. I've said before in Clone Wars that I really love when enemies are are forced to work together, and that this is basically what this is. And like so many of the the Rebels episodes, feel like they just kind of have to rush to, from plot point to plot point. They have twenty two minutes, twenty two minutes, and they have to tell an entire story. And this is one where we just get it's very patiently paced we just get to sit with these two characters and allow you know their who they are to kind of define the conflict and the conversation just get to exist with these people as, as they kind of grow to learn more more and about each other and to respect each other i just i just really like it and 
you know, we get a more serious version of Zeb than we usually see. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorites of the season. Um, and you know, I, I mentioned earlier about how I wanted to read like the extended material and just talking about how much I love how Pablo Hidalgo makes sure everything's so interconnected. It's so cool when they first get to Geonosis and they, they talk about something big being created here. And, and I haven't read it, but apparently there's a, there's a novel that, that's uh, about Tarkin and about Krennic and about how the way they dealt with the Geonosians. Catalyst, yep. Catalyst, yeah, um, that I want to read. I, I'm not a huge fan of the book Catalyst, but it, it was really cool seeing like seeing this after just having finished Catalyst and that huge connection between the two stories. That uh, the fact this like this this is the Death Star building site. Yeah, and I love the fact that it's it's never mentioned. Like, oh yeah, they're building something here, you know, something really big. And like every you know, all the Star Wars fans are like, oh wow, like you know, I know what this is. Yeah, I don't. Or they just kind of move on. Is it the Death Star ever mentioned? Maybe Tarkin mentions it once or twice in the show. Is it, like the Death Star doesn't even really come into play at all in this entire show, which is kind of cool. The fact that they are able to keep that conflict contained to, to A New Hope. And I, I think they're kind of forced to because of um, Rogue One coming out. Because in that, you know, we're definitely seeing the the first time the Rebellion's ever actually heard of it. Then there's just other cool bits like Rex when he's talking about the Geonosians and he's talking about, you know, talking about firsthand experience. They're like, oh, you were you were there whenever you first invaded. He's talking. I think he's talking about, you know, they don't like it when you when you invade their planet, as I found out from experience. And now I'm just picturing like I'm going to start deciding in my head canon which clone he was there. Um, but I just thought that was cool. And then, yeah, I do, I do like that. You know, once once everything happens, there, there's a fun sequence at, at the very beginning. Um, I think chopper rolling and drop kicking is pretty hilarious, and uh, and I'm sure you. This just gives you more reason to hate him. But I love it whenever Ezra asks, he's like, "Chopper, did you get Zeb's trajectory?" And you can like almost hear in English, Chopper just go like, "Do we really need him back?" And I was just like, "Of course we want him back." Yes, it's funny and makes me hate Chopper more. Uh, it makes you look, but uh, but yeah, I, I do agree. I love the fact that once once the stages have been set with that early sequence, this is what the episode is. It's just these two characters, and the entirety of the focus is on dialogue and interaction, and that's something that I don't think we've really seen at this point in Rebels. And we get like I we always like Cos before us, but he was always especially in season one portrayed as a very cold even possibly cruel character and here i think they they realized they wanted to go a different direction with that character they kind of strip a lot of that back because previously he had taken um he like he had claimed responsibility for for having slaughtered the Lasats and basically gloated over it to zeb but here we see here that he, he tells that he actually he was just kind of a captain there and he he had no it he was not planning on the on the slaughter happening but once it happened he kind of just he kind of took the uh he kind of took the credit for it um so that i guess probably just to get a promotion or something and he talk, and as they're talking about you know what happened to genosis and he's like and cal's just like i don't i don't ask questions like he probably knows the the answer is very bad but he wants to maintain his loyalty to the empire. So he just doesn't ask the hard questions 
just because he's afraid of the answers. Yeah, it definitely went a long way layering. And like you said, it it does feel a bit different for him as a character, but I like that they they still make it make sense. You know, where they still have him acknowledging the fact that, that yeah, I I took credit for that, but I took credit for it, you know, maybe so I, I look good to Lord Vader. Um, and may, like all of the other stuff he's done before, maybe it's all just like him trying to trying to really cement himself and and put on this persona and try to be something that he's not and that he can say that he's not now that it's just him and another person in, in this situation. Yeah. And I, I like the story he tells about how he, he got the bow rifle. Zeb's like kind of ta- kind of jabbing about how it was stolen. He tells him, you know, he actually, he fought one of the members of the honor guard and then the honor guard, as he was dying, gave him his bow rifle because he was an honorable foe. It's the David Oyelowo is just fantastic. You really sense that, like he has you know, this grand admiration for that for that Lasat that gave him this uh, weapon. He carries it out of respect, and despite the fact that it's totally contradictory to everything we've heard about uh, how, about uh, Callus, like David Oyelowo is able really able to sell it um, through his performance. And that that monologue is really cool. You know, we get a mention of Saw Gerrera on a yeah yeah. Where is it? Onderon. Uh, which is a cool connection, especially yeah, well, considering that, that's where we hear but... about why he got his his hatred of Zeb and Lasas is that um when he was on Onderon he was injured and then he saw a Lasat bounty hunter slaughtering his entire unit, which probably why he justified you know taking up uh, credit for that and why he gloated over it uh, to Zeb. And I love the ending to this episode when he gets back, you know, and he you know he, he sees Constantine in the hall and it's just like. He wants nothing, Constantine wants nothing to do with him. It's just kind of, you know, you see that he just spent an entire night with the, with this enemy and they bonded and they shared a sense of camaraderie. And now that he's back aboard, you know, with the rest of the empire, there's none of that there. There's no real sense of honor. There's no sense of camaraderie with your fellow soldier. And he's left to just sit on his bed by himself. And, and, you know, and, and Zeb's kind of challenged him when he's like, search for those uh, you know you keep asking those questions and maybe you're gonna find the answers yeah because like if if he had died on that planet they would have just gotten someone else to replace him and no one would have you know no one would have ever thought of him again like his he, he's only there because of what of the use he can provide like and i love that all of that's communicated without telling us like how did this get past the disney censors like the, the fact that they have that ending which is, is all just silent and we get that theme just through visuals and storytelling. It's it shocking. I'll always take it where I can get it. Next episode is Shroud of Darkness. This one's uh, directed by Saul Ruiz and written by Henry Gilroy. So after yet another close escape from the Inquisitors, Kanan realizes that unless they get further training, it's just a matter of time before their luck runs out. So with Ahsoka, Ezra and Kanan decide to go back to the Jedi Temple on Lothal. And while there, they all face visions and learn new wisdom. But when the Inquisitors show up, they're forced to escape yet again. And in the end, Vader arrives and claims the temple for the Empire. And just the opening is a really good battle sequence um, between uh, uh, Ezra and Kanan and the Inquisitors. And I love how in sync uh, Kanan and Ezra are as like a tag team battling against them. It's just the, the choreography and the banter just really gets you back into the kind of Clone Wars just fun. And I love that we start mid-battle and they don't even bother like really setting up the context. It's just we get the shot at the ground and then Ezra like flies into frame 
and the battle wages on it. It's, it's super cool because you know they've run into them at so many times at this point. We don't really need to see that, and I think the fact that we don't kind of makes the the purpose of this episode like stand out even more. Where it's like, I mean, this happens all the time. We're constantly running into these guys. We we need something to to turn the tide. Yeah. And I like that they acknowledge that this is just a matter of time before they're they basically they die. They can you know, they kind of hold their own against the Inquisitors now, but each time it's just a super close escape. Um, that they just realize they and Kanan, you know, both of them, both Kanan and Sabine, didn't finish their training, and they they're reaching kind of the end of the limits of their knowledge. It really, they both felt, they, they really felt like kind of the, the lost, confused youngsters that they are, you know. Both of them were, you know, were basically children when they were separated from the Jedi. And now they're kind of alone in the galaxy. With, just with, there's no, there's no one else like them. Yeah, I love it when we get back to the the temple. Well, first, it's cool, you know, that again, they're not shying away from the fact that Ahsoka still very much distanced herself from the, the Jedi she says, you know, like, I can't help you open this. Um, but I, lo- I love the different visions they all get. <laughs> Back to the opening, like, I love how it opens to a new door, a, a different area. It's like, it came, like, oh, new problem, new door. <laughs> just the the, just the, the uh, temple knows what they need and will lead them to that. Yeah, and, and once they get in, you know, it's cool seeing Yoda. Yoda's design is a little weird. Oh, gosh, I hate it. <laughs> I hate your side so much. Yeah, it, it looks off. But again, you know, I, I still love being able to hear Frank Oz again. And, but the one that got me the most was, was Ahsoka's when she she discovers truly. I, you know, I'm sure she already had her, you know, her beliefs about it, you know, potentially. She probably kind of knew, just didn't want to admit it. But now being forced to confront the truth that, that Anakin is Vader that moment and she's just got the tears running down her cheeks that that was a pretty powerful moment to me yeah just just hearing matt uh matt lanter's voice again where he's calling it out to you where were you do you know what i've become and like his clone as his rebels design is kind of weird it doesn't quite work for me but uh i mean you know all the characters are redesigned but so whatever but i do love just there's so much history and pain behind that scene. And there, there's always that speculation, you know, like, would Anakin have turned if Ahsoka was there? And I feel like the show kind of acknowledges that where he's like, you know, I needed you. Where were you? It's almost like, you know, there's even an acknowledgement that maybe her lack of presence there, you know, it, it was the lack of anchor that he needed. And I'm sure that she probably feels the weight of guilt over that in that scene. Yeah, but whether or not that's true, what we learn in that scene is that that's what Ahsoka fears. Yeah. And going to, going to Kanan, I love how each character kind of wanders off on their own. And like a, the, the uh, temple opens up a door just that only Kanan can see. He's like, yeah, don't worry. I wouldn't do anything you would do. <laughs> I love Ahsoka scene, but I also really love Kanan's. Where he kind of goes into this Jedi dojo and he's confronted by a, a, a temple guard who tells him that... Uh, Ezra will turn to the dark side and he must be killed. And so uh, Kanan has to fight him and he grabs a red lightsaber, which is just awesome. Um, and this really crazy battle. Oh, the Jedi Temple Guardians lightsabers, I think, are 
some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Like the really long uh, handles of these yellow blades. They're just so elegant. In the end, Kanan stops fighting and accepts that, no, he can't uh, defend Ezra forever and kind of just kneels down. And then the, the uh, Guardian knights him. And, you know, you know, by the right of the council, by the will of the force, which is the line from the 2D Clone Wars when uh, Yoda knighted Anakin. That's what I thought it was. I, visually, I was like, that looks like what that was. And then whenever I heard him say that, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's what they said. And uh, it's just, oh, gosh, seeing Kanan, you know, finally become a fully fledged Jedi Knight. Like, the, even though the Jedi Order is gone, the force still found a way to grow him to this point. It's it's so good, and and then the head, the uh, the temple guard takes off his helmet, and it was the head inquisitor, and we learned that he was actually uh, originally a guardian before he became he was you know corrupted by the dark side. So one of the things I was wondering is that just like that's not actually him, right? I don't think it's actually him because I, I doubt he would have learned to force you know to, to to keep his essence after he died. That's what I was saying. It to me, it felt like just the force manifesting itself as as a visual that Kanan would recognize and as a way to kind of teach him a lesson. But I do think he was actually a temple guard. I do too. Yeah. Otherwise there's just the the reason there's no reason to take the time and and say that. Yeah. Um and then going to Ezra's vision, he sees Yoda and Yoda, Yoda is horrifying. Uh not a good design at all. He looks he looks like a little green human with giant ears like he's he's there's none of the charm of the uh clone wars version um it doesn't work but this one is also fascinating we saw like previously ezra could would only see the pixie dust and could only hear his voice now since his abilities in the force have grown he can actually see yoda we get a lot of uh similar similar conversations to um both that final yoda arc from the clone from the lost missions and Yoda's scene with Luke in The Last Jedi about the fall of the Jedi and the failure of the Jedi is in our arrogance, join the conflict swiftly. We did fear, anger, hate. And he just kind of talks about how simply by the Jedi fought in the war through fear. And he pretty much comes out and says that their their choice to enter into the war was a mistake and that was what doomed them. Like their their fight, like because you look, it, it was a political a political civil war. So the Jedi were simply fighting to maintain a a corrupt status quo. They weren't the you know the guardians of peace and the defenders of the weak. They were just simply trying to fight to maintain things the way they were, and they they allowed themselves to become this political pawn. And it was all it, all of it was motivated by fear. You know, and I think it was, you know, the fear of, of losing maybe, you know, the, the power that they had. Because the power they had is be- due to their kind of like pseudo alliance with the Republic. Yeah. And I think this is the first time they literally really come out and say it. Obviously, like, we've obviously, everyone's already pieced together why the Jedi fell and they're, they're pride in their arrogance. But now, like literally in canon, Yoda is saying the Jedi fell. This, this is why the Jedi fell. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a, like a huge step like in, in the canon. Yeah. And it's just super cool in this scene, you know, as, as he's talking about in our arrogance and all that. I think they cut to what is actually just an image taken from the Clone Wars as the camera goes by all the clones. Uh, I'm almost 100% positive that's that's just the scene from, uh, or not the Clone Wars, from the Attack of the Clones, 
at the very end <laughs> as like the Imperial March plays over the Chancellor looking out at the army. Um, very iconic shot, and that was cool. And uh, and yeah, you you mentioned that that last Yoda arc. I really felt like this was Yoda. This was a Yoda who had just learned that lesson, or who, you know, who has that lesson under his belt at this point. Where Ezra is talking about winning, and Yoda just like win, <clears throat> and he kind of like scoffs at the idea. It sounds like the maybe a more bitter version of the guy who you know said at the end like too late for victory are we like he's you know at that point by the end of clone wars he really lost hope that there was any real notion of victory in this war and so his hope was on you know achieving immortality through the force and living through that way and so whenever ezra talks about like winning these physical battles the fact that yoda just kind of like scoffs at it i'm like they're really paying attention to where we left him off in, in clone wars and not just in the live action and so he tells them to go uh, to go to Malakor, and as as they leave, Ahsoka briefly sees Yoda and he waves to her, and that, that feels like a really lovely kind of resolution and uh, you know quasi forgiveness or or just a acceptance of the fact that she left the Jedi and and, and you know t- showing her that he has he holds no anger against her for that choice. That it felt like it meant a lot to to her. It really did feel very sweet. Like he just kind of looks, and he's like, it's just such a. Despite you know my hesitations on the design, it is just kind of like a very nice moment of seeing him just kind of sit down there and and have that friendly wave and smile, and you know I, I think it also means a lot to him because technically the last time we'd seen the two together was in his arc where he's, you know, it's not even so much as him forgiving her, but, you know he kind of needs that moment because he saw in the vision, you know, like, am I a Jedi? Like, will I live on forever? And he had that idea of maybe I failed her. Um, And so now it's him seeing her become, you know, an adult with these new responsibilities and this new purpose. And I'm sure that, you know, more than just her seeing him still with a, a friendly attitude towards her after leaving, he sees her and he kind of gets relief, you know, knowing that she still has purpose. Yeah, they both need that that resolution. So the next episode is um, the forgotten droid. In my notes, I accidentally wrote a droid in distress. <laughs> so it, it was directed by Mel Zauer um, and written by Matt Mishnovitz. Uh, with a new prospect for a rebel base discovered, the rebel fleet plans to make way for it soon. However, the Rebellion's fighter carrier lacked the fuel to make the trip, so the crew of the Ghost travels to the nearby Horizon base to steal a fuel shipment from the Empire. Uh, during the mission to steal the fuel, Chopper leaves the Ghost to buy a new leg for himself. Jerk. Without enough credits, Chopper steals the leg, only to discover he's been left behind. Good. Chopper boards an Imperial ship before it leaves and is discovered by AP-5, a droid that was involved in the Clone Wars. Chopper befriends the droid and removes his restraining bolt, and the two subdue the captain and take control of the ship. While under attack, the rebel fleet plans on leaving for the planet system, or for the planned system, and uh, but are contacted by Chopper, who informs them that he and AP-5 have discovered Imperial occupation at the planned destination. AP-5 is severely damaged by the newly awakened captain, now that he's come to, but is able to transmit the coordinates in time to the... T- uh, to a new potential location. Chopper attacks the captain and regroups with the rebels who are able to repair AP-5. Okay, first off, why is Ketsu with the rebellion in this episode? 
Like last time we saw her, I she had very the same definitively question. says, very definitively says, I am not going to join the rebellion. And next time, next time we see her, like five episodes later, she's just there with the rebellion. It's really weird. Uh, going forward, um, so I hate Shepard. <laughs> like Sarah specifically tells him, you need to watch the ship for us. And no, he just leaves it and goes to find a new leg, which he steals. Ugh. Like, I, I hate... Hey, this is Jar Jar. Like, I hate... No. When the characters are always... When the character's constantly creating his own misery, but some, but is able, but always comes out on top. Yeah, but Chopper doesn't do it out of accident. I, you know, I'm going to sneak off real quick and just get my new leg since no one else cares about me. I don't understand how that's worthy of any sort of hatred. And, and I actually really feel... Because so- he had a job to do. Yeah, but he's always... Because he's always a jerk. <laughs> no, he's he's awesome, and I I feel sorry for him when he's just stand like, it's kind of hilarious in the background. Like during his his exchange with the Ugnot, you just see everybody run aboard the Ghost, and it starts to lift off. Um, then you have that image of the Ugnot looking back, and Chopper's just sitting there looking at the Ghost taking off without him. It's sad. It's sad for those of us who have hearts and are able to latch onto funny droids that we like. No, I, I wish we went back onto the uh, ghost and just because they have much more interesting adventures than anything Chopper can do. No, I kind I like this episode for the most part. It, like I said, it reminded me of some of the some of the droid centric episodes that I wasn't a fan of in the Clone Wars, Isn't but it? but at least in this episode we've got Alan Rickman droid. Yes. So uh, okay, I do like AP Five a lot. Um, he's voiced by Stephen Stanton. Um, who, you know, I guess another callback to D Squad. He's the voice of um, Colonel Gascon, um, and he's one of he's he's pretty much impersonating uh, Marvin the paranoid android from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is just a uh, uh, robot who is in a constant uh, existential crisis about <laughs> the fact that he is the brain the size of a universe and is stuck doing all these stupid menial tasks, and he, he's quite he's quite fun. Yeah, I like it. Chopper was kind of a, a precursor to L3. I feel like here, you know, talking about droid submission and, you know, when he frees the restraining bolt and everything. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite moments is whenever Chopper hands AP his leg and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll hold this for you. And he drops it. Oops. And he just like <laughs> walks over and takes the, the captain's seat. It's it's funny because he's a he's a much more bitter version of c-3po and chopper is just like if r2 got hit in the head and went crazy and so by the end of the episode you know it's just like this super skewed version of their relationship and there's other moments that you know there's there's really no depth to the episode at all it's just kind of droid adventures but there, there were moments that i laughed at you know like as uh, as they were making their way towards the the captain's uh, or to the to the deck and uh or the bridge i guess and chopper you know he he says whatever he says in droid and you just find out that he said first the bridge is the captain and that that's how he thought it would actually play out but uh but yeah it's, i mean it's pretty much entirely self-contained all right um so next episode is miss the mystery of chopper base this one's directed by bosco ng and written by Stephen melching the, the rebellion is setting up their new base on adelon and a pilot is taken by a giant spider thingy and sabine and rex go to investigate uh, but they are also attacked, and Rex is taken. So the rest of the crew enters the caves and rescue him, but then are again set by, uh, beset by hordes of the creatures. 
Um, they narrowly escape uh, by discovering that the uh, monsters don't like the uh, sensors, um, so they set them up all around the base. So why is why is this name Chopper Base? Because AP Five is the one who found, who warned them about the Imperial occupation on the other planet, and he's the one who gave them this planet. Why does Chopper get the credit? <laughs> Chopper found some way to talk himself into getting the credit. Yeah, so we, we see a bit, bit about Ezra and Kane in uh, training. Um, and we kind of go back to that high stress level of Kanan is... He's basically preparing Ezra for what he thinks will be a fight to the death. Like They, they know they are going to have to face the Inquisitors. And he's like really going hard on... Um, on as are trying to prepare him for this this inevitable uh meeting and from what we hear they've pretty much completely backed out of any kind of uh service within their body they they like they are only focused on this new task of destroying the inquisitors and that's causing a lot of tension between um Hera and Kanan because Hera's like Hera understands that they have to do this that the fact that, that the um the inquisitors are a danger and that wherever you know wherever the jedi are the inquisitors will come so she's kind of basically kind of distancing herself from Kanan in case this doesn't turn out well so that she can continue the continue the fight. Yeah, I like the beginning of this episode a lot as we we try to establish, you know, you've got that tension and that sense of foreboding um, surrounding a lot of the scenes. But we also have like that, the small moments of reprieve where people feel like they can kind of relax a little bit. I love that Zeb just kind of goes and has his own little setup where... <laughs> You know, he's out there probably just drinking a beer by himself. I would love to have a beer with Zeb. Going back, going back to the main plot, so the the pilot is taken by the spider thing. And the, the spiders are based on a Ralph McQuarrie design um, for Dagobah. Just very creepy looking creatures. These giant, like, white spiders, this huge domed body and eyes all around. And, you know, really, really nasty looking. And as uh, Zeb very eloquently puts it, more than two legs is just excessive. <laughs> Yeah, I love that line. I'm not gonna lie; these things freak me out. They look like they look like ticks with spider legs, like those big, fat back ends. Uh, they they're pretty, and the like the way they've got their like those bottom two teeth like things that just tap on their beak like mouth to make those noises. Oh, it was so and the the way they captured the movement, it like. Oh, those things really freaked me out this episode. Their design was terrifying. Yeah, so going down to the caves to find Rex felt a lot like a Legacy of Terror. Um, you know, with a similarly like terrifying and unstoppable enemy. Um, like the the episode weirdly kind of just forgets about the pilot's existence. I guess she got eaten, eaten whatever. But uh, so they find Rex, and uh, I, I, there's one really cool scene where um Zeb asks when I mean, they're they're separating. And Zeb asks her, you know, shouldn't we have a Jedi on each team? And she's like, we have to get used to not having them around. And it's like super cold. It's like, you know, she's in this for the long game. Since so she knows there's a high chance that Ezra and Kanan are, you know, are going to, to possibly die. You know, she's preparing the crew to, to work without them. And I like that it takes the time to stop and zoom in on Sabine, who, you know, Zeb seems to know about it enough where, you know, he even has that conversation with Ezra, but just hearing that seemed to have deeply affected Zabine, who just kind of stops in her tracks and, and looks around. Yeah. About the, the pilot getting captured, that kind of, it almost, it's the same frustration though that I have with something like the Rath Tars in The Force Awakens, where it's like, it grabs 
you know, a side character dead instantly. It happens to lay its hands on like a main character and you know, well, I got to save that for later, but, uh, oh, well we need Zeb alive. Yeah. So they, they find, they save Rex and he's in this like really cool, creepy cage of legs. It felt a lot like finding the, uh, the guys glued to the walls and aliens. Yeah. Um, so they retreat, but they, they, they find the, uh, the ship is glued down and the creatures are kind of crawling all, all over the ship. It's really, it's a really intense uh, sequence. And I know if I was a kid watching this, I would, I would be terrified. And you got that shot of, a uh, of Rex turning the corner and looking down the hall. And that one spider thing is like forcing its way through the door. It's got its legs on the inside, scratching around. It's just so gross. As they as it ends, did you have you started noticing the owl that's kind of connected to Ahsoka? Yeah, that was weird. It, at the very end, during their last conversation, you have that like w- even before the conversation starts, when Ezra's there and he's trying to connect with the the spider creature, you hear the super creepy version of the Imperial March, uh, and the only time like the only other time we hear it at this point. Uh, it was in Empire Strikes Back whenever Luke beheads the like the vision of Vader and the the mask explodes and he sees his face and you hear that super creepy version. It's that same version that plays here. Well, I don't know if it means anything because Kiner is very liberal with ripping off original music. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think there's a connection there, but it just, it, you know, it feels like he intentionally went out and saw like, what's the creepy version of this theme specifically? And so I was wondering what the significance of of using that creepy version of of the Vader theme, and then having a, like during him trying to connect with the creature, and then Ahsoka coming up, and and then zooming in on the owl. It felt like there was stuff that was supposed to be gleaming from that, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is exactly. Yeah, the owl. Like I, the first time I remember seeing that owl was on the um the the Wookiee hunt arc from season three, like. I don't remember that. Like, oh, so this is a clone. When, when they're walking up that giant vine, that beautiful uh, landscape shot, they're walking up the vine to their and uh, a vine to their hideout, and the uh, I forget the the main Padawan girl takes a swing at this uh, kind of bird flying around her head. It's one of those. Hmm. I don't. I don't know. Wh- I don't know where this connection was established, but the, the and it kind of sort of comes back later on in the seasons. But it's it's like the I don't know. There's something about this show that's kind of connecting animals to people. It's weird. I don't know entirely what it means, but yeah, I guess they're somehow connecting them to her. Yeah, I just thought the ending stuck out being so ominous with that like creepy version of the theme and and just holding on the shot for that long. So now we're at the finale, Twilight of the Apprentice, which is a two-parter. <coughs> so Ezra, Ahsoka, and Kanan travel to Malachor in search of knowledge that would help them defeat the Inquisitors. Finding an old pillar after they arrive there, Ezra touches it, which causes the ground to fall out from beneath their feet. Um, they find themselves in a vast old battlefield next to an old Sith temple. Uh, Chopper discovers another ship and informs them that they're not alone. They are soon attacked by a new Inquisitor, causing Ezra to fall into a second layer underground, where he meets a mysterious person, neither Jedi nor Sith, introducing himself as Old Master. The figure is eventually revealed to be Maul. He convinces Ezra to assist him in getting the Sith holocron. After successfully retrieving the holocron, Ezra and Maul emerge from the temple to discover Kanan and Ahsoka facing off against the three Inquisitors. 
Maul and Ezra assist in fending off the three Inquisitors, uh, and then they decide that they must go to the top of the Sith Temple uh, and insert the holocron there. Um, they split off into two, with uh, Maul and Ahsoka waiting down at the bottom for Ezra and Kanan to go up first. Um, they are then attacked by the Inquisitors again, and uh, Maul and Ahsoka end up joining them in uh, in combat and fending them off yet again. And then after which they again split up into two pairs, but this time Maul convincing Ezra to go with him and Ezra convincing Kanan that he's smart enough to be able to handle himself. So the two separate. Maul and Ezra run into the seventh sister. Maul force chokes her and holds her in the air and demands that Ezra kill her. Ezra's not able to go through with it, after which Maul beheads her. And then Kanan and Ahsoka are attacked by the, the, the remaining two Inquisitors after Ezra continues going up to the top of the temple by himself. Maul kills, I think it's the, the fifth brother, um, and ends up damaging the, the hilt of the, ninth, of the eighth brother's hilt, or saber. Uh, and he t attempts to flee using it as the, the helicopter, as he done before. But it malfunctions and he falls to his death. Maul then turns on, um, on Ahsoka and Kanan and blinds Kanan. And Ahsoka ends up leaving to go after Ezra herself, who has already entered in the Sith holocron. Uh, and as he finds out, which has activated a weapon, uh, which is what the Sith temple is. And then Darth Vader ends up showing up in one of the coolest shots ever. And Ahsoka is there to face Vader. Kanan then joins Ezra and assists him in removing the holocron. And they leave, leaving Ahsoka to face Vader. So yeah, there's a lot going on in this episode. First off, when they first get to the Sith Temple on Malachor and they fall in, I just it's so foreboding and creepy when you're going through and these like these bodies kind of burned into into place and lightsabers everywhere and Ezra picks one up and it's like it's a green lightsaber with a cross guard which is so cool and then when they meet the the eighth brother attacks them and he's like shocked with this three Jedi this is not what I was here for and they kind of slowly piecing together there's someone else here that he was actually chasing Maul which is just really cool but then obviously Maul Maul's in this episode. And he hasn't changed one bit. He's still, I mean, obviously, you know, he comes to us in the guise of an old man and he's very, he, you know, he, he kind of takes Ezra under his wing and they together, they go to the temple through a really cool set of challenges where it always requires two people where they're, they open, you know, they open one door and they have to go in and while, the, well, it's not a door, it's basically a, like a, a slab of stone that they have to hold over their heads. And there's like three of them. And the next one, the next one has to open that next one, while they and then they have to walk through. And basically, they have to kind of take turns opening the doors to get through. And then once they get to the to through that, there's a chasm that one has to throw the other across. And it's kind of going into the um the 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 rule of two. The Sith were you know very distrusting. And they never were together, and that that was a problem. So th these challenges force would for have to force Sith to trust each other with their lives essentially to, to achieve their goal yeah this so this two-part episode kind of blew me away this is the first i think 
the first episode after Princess of Lothal was the first I had seen, like, was whenever I started watching this for the first time. And I was really enjoying it. But this episode, these these two, really are some of the best of either series, I think. I, I love that just at the very beginning, you know, we start as they're already headed on their mission. And, and Rex is just kind of like being this friendly figure to Ahsoka. And, you know, we get that line, in my book, experience outranks everything. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, man, yeah. they're they are really tugging at my heartstrings right now. Um, and, yeah, when we get there, so cool. Whenever they first fall through the cracks and the camera pulls out, my mind went straight toward, uh, straight to the two towers, Lord of the Rings, the two towers, where Gandalf is falling down the chasm with the Balrog. And it feels like they set up the, the shot super similarly. And, and then the actual temple and the grounds around it itself reminded me a lot of Alien Covenant, where you just got all of the frozen bodies surrounded by the giant pyramid. And, but you just the, the black and like red lighting, everything, and just all of these corpses. And then you have Ezra be like, the, you know, asking if the Jedi won, and Ahsoka saying, I don't think anybody won. Is this just such this oppressive feeling around everything here? Yeah, and then when, when the Inquisitors show up and that they call Maul the Shadow. Which is like, it's so cool because we're kind of glimpsing into a whole other story that we never hear of how the other Inquisitor was just kind of here by accident because he was following the shadow. Just, I, I, I kind of want to know what that story was of how they come That's to know what, Maul. We've got such an incomplete story of Maul now where, you know, we end the Clone Wars with I have other uses for you being said by the Empire. And then, then he's running the, you know, the, was it the Crimson Dawn and Solo and now he's just kind of fleeing the empire here you know we've got we've got a piece missing on each end of solo that i demand be filled but i love sam whitworth's performance here he's like this is one of my favorite vocal performances of the series where you know he starts off really sounding like such a you know an old raggy old man who's like been through it all and you know i the second that i it was a surprise to me seeing him because I knew he came back here, but I thought it was season three. So when I saw him and I saw the tattoos, I was like, wait a second, there, he's here now. And, uh, but just, he's, you can tell that it's Sam Witwer and it's that it's his version of Maul, but you can also tell that it's his version of Maul putting on this old kind of unassuming man who, who's not going to oppose any sort of threat. And the way he uses his lightsaber as a can just, the entire performance of Maul here from from visually the way they animate him to to Sam Witwer's voice, I just think it's phenomenal. Yeah, just he's obviously learned to be a better teacher than when he was to his brother. It's the way he like kind of takes Ezra under his wing, he's like slowly coaching him towards the dark side. And then when, when they finally meet, and obviously Ahsoka knows who Darth Maul is, and it's just the craziness of the situation they're in where, you know, Ahsoka and Caden are having to ally themselves with Darth Maul. Um, and the, the shot of all, like, each one kind of clashing in turn with the Inquisitors, like, all in a line. <laughs> so gorgeous. Yeah, that whole fight scene, the action is pretty amazing. Because, you know, especially when Maul just kind of jumps in by himself at first. And you've got four double-bladed lightsabers. And so the battlefield is just, like, all of these flashes of red around each other. It just looks so cool. And throughout the whole episode, Caden is very aware of the fact that uh, Maul is trying to pull at Ezra. When they have to go up on the elevator, he's like, Maul's like, you know, only two, no more, no less. He's like, yeah, well, these two come as I said. <laughs> just kind of pushes Maul out of the way. <laughs> when Maul finally betrays him, he's like, you know, where's Ezra? Oh, you mean 
my apprentice. And then we learn what he's really about. That he, as you said, is, is a super weapon. And, you know, he's still on vengeance. Like, you know, Sidious took away his empire. So, and since he was a Sith, he was owed power. And he needs that vengeance because he was wronged. It's just, he's still, you know, you see he's still bogged down in this just cycle of hate and rage. Yeah, I love it because, you know, technically, like you said, he's he's the same Maul we saw before. But it doesn't feel like just like, okay, let's let's put Maul in here. Like, it feels, it feels like it would make sense that he would be here. And it's an interesting way for him to, like, you said he's learned in how to try to like coax someone into be, being his paddle and how to like to train them and and stuff like that. And I love I love it when they're going through the uh, the Sith Temple at first and he's growing like slightly frustrated with Ezra as as he continues and Ezra lets up for a little bit and you just kind of hear him slip out of his unassuming old man voice and into his mall voice, which is like focus. And then they they keep moving on. It's just such a cool performance and and um. After he blinds Caden, Caden uh, puts on one of the like ancient uh, temple guardian masks, and it's a really cool sequence. Where he basically turns into Daredevil, like, and all the sounds are amplified as yeah. his Maul's kind of stalking him. And he, I don't, it, I don't entirely buy that a, that a guy who's so recently blinded could defeat Darth Maul. I guess he was just too overconfident. But either way, it's a really cool scene. Yeah. And then, of course, we we cut to the top of the temple, and when it, it sounded like it sounded like the voice talking to him was Asajj Ventress. At first, I thought it, it was going to be uh, Nika Nika Futterman. Okay, um, I thought it was going to be revealed to actually somehow be Asajj, but I, I guess it's just you know she's using a similar voice. But whenever whenever she refers to the other one coming, and you think he's just referring to Maul. But it turns out you've got this TIE fighter descending with Vader standing on top. It's <laughs> so cool. Oh, gosh. And I love the line. You know, I don't fear you. Then you will die braver than most, which is the most Vader thing ever. And again, you know, like we, we talked about with the season, uh, the season premiere where, you know, he's he's still fighting with that same Vader stance. But but here, whenever whenever Ahsoka shows up and they start fighting it, they somehow make it look like like an actual fight where, you know, Ahsoka's fighting style is just so acrobatic and jumping around everywhere. And Darth Vader just kind of stands with his feet firmly planted on the ground, with his hand holding, like with just one hand on the saber, bringing it down. And, yeah. You know, it, they still, that, that whole fight looks so well choreographed. Like it's such a, it's two powerful people with just vastly different fighting styles, but... You know, not not equal because I I think you know, had it gone on longer, Darth Vader may have won. I I just think we're we're led to believe at this point that he he's a power that's just kind of unmatched right now. But but still, just the way they shoot that fight is amazing. The whole fight is gorgeous because you know Ahsoka first comes and faces him, and and this really amazing bit of dialogue where you know, first he says you know basically the same line that uh. Uh, Kylo says in The Force Awakens, you know, Anakin Skywalker was weak. I destroyed him. Yeah. And she says, you know, then I will avenge his death. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi, which is... And then she she puts the lightsaber tips together and ignite and kind of pulls them apart as she ignites them. <laughs> it is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I just... I'm glad you caught that because I was like, it, it's... 
There's got to be a gif of that somewhere because it's just it's too awesome looking. Yeah, and again, Ahsoka, like I just I love all that the meaning behind I am no Jedi. She is she is something else, and it's amazing. And oh, the, the the long tracking shot as she runs, like it's kind of coming parallel as she's running toward Vader, and I love how kind of the lightsabers trail behind her as she runs. It's so good. But the, cam- the, cam- the camera follows her running in, and then it, it follows several blows and ends as she force pushes him. It's like this really amazing shot. Very, very cinematic. Like it, it feels like you know they're intentionally trying to mimic working with cameras. Yeah. And, you know, and then as that goes on, Kanan rejoins him at the top. <laughs> and again, man, this has got to make you like Chopper a little bit more. But it's also just such a sad image of, of Chopper having his arm out leading leading blind Kanan is so sad to me so sad looking but so so sweet and Chopper has a heart and he cares about him I will give Chopper a point for that and then they're they're reuniting and, and pulling the holocron and, and it, I feel so bad for for Ezra you know because you know you you had that brief moment where he he kind of looked up to Hondo and and then you know this this moment here with Maul and and then Ahsoka and Rex and Kane, he's got all he's surrounded by all these different mentors and and you you know, no wonder he, he might be you know, hold on to some of them tightly because, you know, Hondo's kind of this this, this pirate who left him and, and Maul straight up betrayed him and, and now he's losing Ahsoka down there and really the only sort of people he has to look up to are Kanan, who's now blinded, and uh, and Rex when they get back and you know, Ezra's kind of been put through the ringer throughout the season. Yeah. Oh, but there's a moment I have to talk about is when Ahsoka comes and cuts open Vader's mask. And when he looks up, we see that it is, even though it's just like an eye and a tiny bit of his cheek, it is his Clone Wars face design. Like, I, I almost feel like showing us that very Rebelsified facial design in the hologram was kind of a trick to make it, this scene hit us all the more, all the harder. Because we see, like his, his, you know, his eyes yellow, but it is very much Anakin's face and the angular, more kind of like style. Yeah, and there's this beautiful mix of of uh, Matt Matt Lanter and James Earl Jones' voices. He's your Ahsoka, and you see kind of the hatred go out of his eyes for a second. They kind of just stare at each other, and then it comes back into his face. It's it's so powerful. And and the fact that. That having the helmet crushed and having him see with their own eyes, we we talked about that a bit in Revenge of the Sith of why that might actually mean so much more is, you know, with two robotic arms, two robotic legs, and seeing the entire world through this red filtered lens with these numbers and everything, you, you know, it's no wonder he can kind of just fool himself into thinking he is just this machine of death, and and to have that destroyed and to be forced to look at his old pad like uh, his old padawan with his own eyes, you know, it's. That's got to do something to him emotionally. What's so great about this episode is it they they take advantage of the fact that the way the way Clone Wars ended, you know, Ahsoka was left very much hanging, and so was Maul. And, and in this in this episode, we we you know we've we've had Ahsoka back in the throughout the season, but now we're finally getting some resolution for the fact that she was Darth Vader's Padawan and she left him and all of just the guilt and rage and pain uh between those two um is just it's so it's it's like it's emotion that i have not felt since like the the, the wrong jedi arc or something 
it's, it's all this, all these feelings that were just left completely in the air from the Clone Wars that are just perfectly resolved in this ending. And like it ends, we see the, the, the temple blows up and then this kind of really gorgeous montage at the end. We see Vader limping out of the wreckage and then Ahsoka kind of quietly walking back into the temple, which... I've never, I never knew whether that that was what that was exactly was supposed to signify. Like it, it, like it could have signified both either that she's still alive or simply kind of symbolic of her being dead. Like it was just a really artful way of leaving it up in the air, so that they could do they could do either, either either or, um, in in the coming season. And then the, the scene where um, Kanan and Hera's reunion, you see that Hera did not expect to see Kanan alive again. And when she comes out and they're blind and they hug, it's just all so many. There's so many feels at the end of this this uh, this season. And the end, uh, Ezra opens the holocron, and you see uh, for a brief second, like his blue eyes is a flash of red from the light of the holocron. And he's like, "Ooh, maybe he's falling to the dark side." Just like this is how you end a season, man. It's yeah. it, it 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 resolves so many plot points, but does it in such an emotionally powerful way for so many characters. That's one of the things that was so impressive to me about it. Where, you know, obviously it was helped out by being a two-parter, but I mean, there's so much stuff from Clone Wars that it's it's providing resolution to. Like you said, it's it's trying to provide closure for Maul, for Ahsoka, and for her relationship with Vader, all while never really coming at the cost of Kanan and Ezra. Uh, and then you know Kanan's relationship with Hera at the very end, like it's it's not just relying on our investment of the previous series. Like it's it's still very much focused here, but it's it's embracing that into one story. I love when a show isn't afraid to, to change things. Like this 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 thing shatters the status quo. You know the three Inquisitors they're dead. Kanan is blind. Ahsoka is gone. It's like every, the whole the future is so unknown going forward after this because just everything the show has been about till now has just been kind of ripped up and thrown away yeah i didn't get a chance to start season three though i i tried to hurry up and finish my notes so that i could but you know it's by the end of season one you had an idea of what to expect with season two where it's you know like we we're part of a bigger rebellion now The, the scale is about to increase but here like you said the, the status quo is just so disrupted where i really don't know what to expect what is kanan and his role going to look like now what is what is rex going to do now that all of this like now that ahsoka is gone and we don't really know her fate you know is how's is vader changed at all through it like this what's ezra doing and you know having not i i know very very little about seasons three and four so i'm very excited to continue on and yeah, I, I'm quite ready to to watch that season three uh, premiere now. Yeah. So, uh, what are your overall thoughts on this season? Uh, much more positive than my thoughts on season one. And, and as you referenced at the beginning of the show, I was actually pretty positive on season one. You know, I, I think that if we're just comparing season one of Rebels to season one of Clone Wars and season two to season two of Clone Wars, I think this is a better season two. And I don't know. You got the invasion of Agenosis. You've got that, yes, but I. I don't know. The, the lows to me, as much as I love the invasion of Geonosis, one, this season was a lot more consistent. Because if I remember season two correctly of Clone Wars, for me personally, I felt it was very consistent where it almost felt like we had a great arc and then we had something that I just was completely disinterested in and then another great arc. And, and here there were a couple of episodes that I thought were definitely lulls, but I thought it was just much more consistent. And I think 
you know, they, they really hadn't mastered how to fully use arcs yet. Although Geonosis was amazing, you know, it wasn't until a bit of season three and especially season four and five where you're just getting solid arc followed by solid arc. But here, you know, I, you know, they've, you've got, you've got through lines running throughout the entire season. That's kind of feeding one episode into the next. And, and overall, I just felt like because it was one, like a longer singular story, I was wanting to hit play on the next episode more than I was by season two of Clone Wars. And then, yeah, I, I don't think the quality ever dipped as low as it might have a couple of times in that season two mm-hmm. and the season two finale to me was not nearly as strong as this, which, which I just, I put this like, like everything, all the praise we just had for it, like the way they handled Maul and the Ahsoka Vader reunion was just so perfect. And that last montage hit me in the gut real hard. So yeah, this season I just thought was very strong. Yeah, the first season it felt like half of the episodes were pretty much filler that I could take or leave. There are still a couple filler episodes that I could do without here, but overall, like every episode feels stronger than the first season. As I was talking about, the stakes feel so much more real. There's there's danger, and while there's still very little thematic content in this show, I might, I'm starting to connect a lot more to the characters. The arcs feel more purposeful and less. Yeah, it's it's still a kids show. You know, it still has. You know, it's much more centered. The violence isn't nearly as violent as the Clone Wars was, but it's really coming to its own. It's finding a stride, and it's not nearly as jarring with with the kitty element. So yeah, I'm really happy with this season. And you know, to a certain extent, you know, when we talk about it, it being still a, a kids show, I feel like I I don't even I'm not saying Star Wars can't go darker than this because obviously Clone Wars Clone Wars would go darker than this, and and I absolutely love Clone Wars, but. But I don't want that to be something that I demand. And so I don't think that demanding it be darker than it is now. I think the tone right here is if this is what they want for this Star Wars show, that's perfectly fine because, you know, you know, Phantom Menace, you know, is, is can't I enjoy a new hope, even the force away, like the, the tone never really goes super dark. And I, I like the variability. So the fact, the fact that, you know, I feel like we've kind of seen the limit to their darkness here. And I think it goes pretty dark, you know, like very much an implied decapitation. The entire finale, just the lighting and the tone. I want to see my decapitations. Yeah, but although technically we never actually saw the decapitations in Clone Wars. They also hid them, so I can't fault that here. Yeah, yeah well, that, that's totally fair. I, when I when, this when I talk about that, like there are times where I think this this is objectively too childish for the tone it's established. Like but overall, like when I'm talking about the more kitty tone. That's more of a preference issue. It's it's more. I know the potential the, the the that these animated seasons have, and this is a very good show for what it is as a as a Disney XD kids show. It's more just my my when I'm saying that's more my preference, not not necessarily an objective flaw. Yeah, yeah, and you know even about just potential, like I I don't think we can link potential for greatness with darkness and tone. That, that, that's how it always turns out, isn't it? Like what are your your, the, your favorite arcs from the, the Clone Wars? Eh, eh, true. But that's just that's the way of the world. Even still, yeah. But A New Hope will probably always be my favorite movie. True. The these, there's something different about these TV shows. That is interesting. Um, so what are your top five uh, favorite episodes from the season? Number one, I guess I'll just count as uh as the fina- the two part finale. My second favorite would probably be the two part opening, the Siege of Lothal. My third 
would be the um the one with Callus and Zeb. I forget that the name. honorable ones. The honorable ones. Um, fourth favorite would probably be the Lost Commanders. Um, and what would be my fifth? Oh wait, actually, I'm I would probably replace switch the Lost Commanders for my fifth favorite, and be my fourth favorite. I forget the the name of the episode, but the one where Rex and Kanan rescue Cell Strike. Yeah, just because. Well, with A New Hope being my favorite, like I just had so much fun with the visuals and the tone and dialogue of that episode. It really struck the right chord with me. And for me, it's a Twi- uh, Twilight of the Apprentice, a part two, uh, Brothers of the Broken Horn, because Hondo, duh. Oh, uh, man. And Relics of the Old Republic, which is the, the one where they, they fight in the sandstorm, the Honorable Ones, which you mentioned, and then Shroud of Darkness, where they go to the, uh, the Jedi Temple on the yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good episodes this season. Listen, yeah, because I I can't argue against your picks, but I because you, you, then you mentioned the uh, the the premiere, which I totally forgot. Like, yeah, I I should have mentioned that as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff here. All right, so that was a uh, season two, a, a lot of uh, material to cover, but uh, yeah, really fun discussion. I think very um, I'm very I'm very happy with the way the show is going. All right, so again, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoyed the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, where there's Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, so primarily on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm there as J.L. Henry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, try to update movie lists and reviews and everything I've seen there. And you and I are actually admins over at the Facebook group, Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. Um, it's a group we like to, to promote now. Uh, I, it was kind of just a, an environment that the two of us, along with some other friends, really wanted to establish where you, know, you don't have to be in love with all of the movies and you don't have to love every decision made. And you know, obviously a lot of this does stem from the, the backlash to The Last Jedi and a lot of other stuff and just where the community's at right now. But we just wanted a, a place where we can discuss intelligently without name calling and stuff like that. Just the different things that we do appreciate about the series as a whole. Yeah. So definitely feel free to join that if you want to talk positively about Star Wars. Yep. And uh, I am also on Letterboxd. I'm there at uh, Gabriel Green. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Gabe A. Green. Um, so next week, of course, we'll be continuing with Season 3 of Rebels. And uh, we get introduced to uh, our favorite blue alien, which uh, you haven't met yet, have you? I have not yet. I'm very excited. Like I said, from now on, I, I'm in. I'm almost entirely in the dark, aside from like a couple of plot point, like major plot points that I know. But uh, but even still, there's a lot that I don't know, and I'm very much looking forward to that. So until next week, we will see you in season three. That is a fair deal. And it disgusts me.